Welcome to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. I'm your host, Jason Dubray, and I am joined by the greatest of all time, Rank and Review host and random Canadian, one Larry Parsons. Welcome, Welcome back. To my basement. <laughs> well, yeah, we are recording in your basement, and we're recording in person. Again, a little bit of a rarity for my show, which shouldn't have been a rarity. I think when I started this out, I thought every show was going to be in person, like, for a time, most of yours were, but now it's... COVID was a dark most... time for Rank and Review. Mm -hmm. I am not really good with technology. You know that scene in Jurassic Park where Sam Neill goes on, like, anytime he touches a computer, it breaks? I kind of feel like I'm that guy. Yeah. So I will always, if given the opportunity, I'll be face-to-face. -face. Yeah. And I I use it, but I... Yeah, I kind of I feel the same way. But now I'm some of the people that I'm recording with are in different countries, and I'm recording... Um, I might refer to it later on, uh, a show for somebody else's podcast who's in Australia. So that in that case, we have no choice. But um, I think it's with just the quality of sound and everything's been better when we've been in person for your show and for mine. So, yeah. Um, I want to start off before we get into our, I think, rather fun topic of great villains. Uh, thanking you for having a sh an episode of Rankin Review highlighting the shelf-shedding movie oh, show. Yes. I know you kind of refer to it as a bit of a clip show, but... <laughs> It's you a clip show from your show. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it took it took from, I think it was three or four episodes of uh, of the Shelf Shedding movie show. Movies that you wouldn't necessarily be probably ever reviewing on Rank and Review because you've, you've stuck to horror and fantasy and sci-fi, genre cinema mostly. Yeah. Um, so I uh, really enjoyed listening to it and, uh, you know, remembering those things, but also kind of there's a few moments where I'm wincing like okay this one review I that was in the stage where I was over editing okay. it was like it, it was very clipped clipped I could tell when I had like taken the ums and ahs out which I still kind of do to be honest but well, uh, uh, I can uh, relate to how um, someone who ums too much can be real hard to uh, listen to in the edit so I'll, I'll, because I'll, you have edited hours <laughs> yes and uh, hours <laughs> of my Casting on your show. <laughs> but villains. Villains, yeah. We're going to be talking about great villains. This is um, back when I kind of uh, came up with some episodes for this show. I, I put a whole series of episodes on great villains, and this is the first one that uh, we'll have a chance to, we'll have to talk about it. A um, couple firsts. It'll be the first time a James Bond movie has been uh, reviewed on, on this podcast. And oddly enough, uh, just the history of some of these movies. Some of them are, are very personal to me, either nostalgic or I remember where I was and the point I was in my life when I saw them. So even maybe the ones I'm not going to be quite as nice to. But we were just saying beforehand, the overall quality of these movies is pretty good. I think whatever ends up at the bottom is still something we'll probably both recommend to people if they're into yeah that specific type of movie. Um but yeah, I, I, I think, you know, these, these play around with horror a little bit. There may be a little bit more thrillers in nature or action movies. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great to be able to uh, watch some of these again. Um, some of them I've watched a lot. They were like the movies as a teenager I'd watch over and over again. Or I would run to specific scenes because I wanted to see this actor do something. Uh, some I haven't watched as much. I watched when there's first in theaters and I got a copy of it at some point, but it kind of sat on the shelf and I haven't uh, 
haven't really watched it until getting ready for this show. So what were your thoughts on this crop of uh, films? Well, it kind of felt like a spiritual sequel, even though I know only two of them have Robin Williams to the episode yes. we did on Ranking Review where we did a tribute to Robin Williams. Yeah. And it's like both of these could have very well been on, on that episode. Um, but uh, it was sort of him playing against type. And it's kind of funny how often that happens in, 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 in movies. They'll either cast a person who's known from like a sitcom or as a stand-up comedian as like a serial killer and mm -hmm. becomes that much more what the hell because of it. Or someone who looks benign. I would say Goldfinger in the, the Bond movie we're going to talk about. Doesn't look like you're sinister heavy. He doesn't look like if he was going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jason Momoa, it would last very long. <laughs> yeah, right? like, yeah. But he's got personality. He baby. does. And for me, personality goes a long way. But it also has to fit with the kind of story you're telling. Mm -hmm. uh, the personality that Robin Williams has in One Hour Photo is <laughs> not a big winning personality, but it's a portrait of somebody who is fundamentally broken. And yes. it's, it's well-rendered. So that's a very different environment than Goldfinger or In the Line of Fire. Yes. So um, in some cases, I just went, well, yes, this is obviously the best. But in another case, you, I may argue that a favorite might have overperformed for me in this list. Mm -hmm. But I did enjoy rewatching all of them, and I did find new things, I think, to talk about. Yeah. Um, because some of these um, have been reviewed on my show in the past. So. <clears throat> Which ones have been? Sorry, um, I, I'm trying to remember. Actually, just Insomnia, I think. Insomnia is the only one? Okay. But, um, you know. I, Sometimes I, I try to avoid that if I can, but it's it's you've done know, 200 and nearly episodes. 250 episodes So uh, at the end of this season. So kind of Six hard to do. Six movies an episode. Yeah. That's a, uh, RankingReview.ca for people who are listening. <laughs> yes, check that out. please check out that show and download the episodes and check out the website because I know, sadly, there's been some trouble with I some things. some technical issues, as I was talking about earlier, and my whole site had to be sort of reset, which is great, which has me back on and visible, but it basically meant that like my 237th episode, as far as the internet was concerned, reads as my first, oh, which yeah. sucks. <laughs> well, maybe I'll I'll try to like download or, or, or again put the episodes some of the episodes on to my Any kind Facebook or whatever so a people like, check a out review, that. a download anything helps. So yeah. 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 Well, that's the end of me selling my my, 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 my product. I yeah. No, no, no. Uh, that's and that's that's what you need to do here for sure. And we want to support our, our friendly podcast. And you always do a shout out for my show, yeah. uh, either at the beginning or the end of your show. So I always appreciate that. We, we'll talk about the Robin Williams uh, previous episode probably somewhere in here as well. Um, because, uh, yeah, I think at the time we had talked about, sometimes it was a little bit hard to put that show together and figure out, as great as he was, uh, six just amazing movies to put into that episode. Um, and there was one, uh, World's Greatest Dad, which yeah. I had trouble with. Right. I, I might revisit it again at some point to see if I was too harsh. Um, I have bigger troubles with Father's Day and RV. Yes. I oh, I'm much bigger. No, no. Don't don't get me wrong. But to, as a representative of like these His late career, kind of darker roles, I kind of thought One Hour Photo or Insomnia. Right. I know Insomnia was part of a different episode for you. And so, um, 
were kind of, I, I saw it as, as that type of a thing. But oddly enough, I'm, I think I maybe liked these villainous characters that he plays that we're going to be talking about a lot more than... Uh, than the guy in that film. Well, We're not really supposed to like him, I guess. He's but. known as the wacky dude, but as far as his film performances, you know, what do we remember him for? We remember Goodwill Hunting and yep. The Fisher King, and I guess Good Morning Vietnam, which sort of splits the, the line. Yeah, the Dead Poets and Awakenings are kind of in yeah. the conversation too, but yeah, um, but yeah, this was a time when I think this was the, the year he did about three movies where he played much darker characters than people had been used to, and so even though some other films he did had, had darker themes, he kind of went for it that year. And, you know, that's, I mean, good for him. So a long way from work. Yeah. Uh, we uh, are going to be starting off with, uh, you mentioned one hour photo, and then we're going to take a look at uh, Goldfinger. That is the, uh, one of the most famous James Bond films of all time. Uh, we're going to take a look at a brutal independent number called sexy beast starring gandhi himself we'll talk about that in a bit then 1993's in the line of fire starring clint eastwood uh renee Rousseau, and john malkovich With wolfgang peterson directed by the now uh deceased uh he, Wolf pass he passed away i think last year unfortunately yeah yeah i, we're, we, I won't let me, I go on it too long but we're losing too many of these great uh these great filmmakers uh, then we'll look at No Country for Old Men, because it wouldn't be a show with you on uh, Shelf Shade Movie Show. I nearly said Rankin Review. Shelf Shade Movie Show without a Coen Brothers film. Right, and that is the other one. That, that is, I, 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 anybody who's listened to the shows before know where, <laughs> where we're going with this, but that's fine. You're a great person to talk to about this, because I, I will throw out some, th some things in there that uh, more, not me, but people say about that film that uh, will... We'll have a lot to talk about with that one. And uh, then we're going to end off with, uh, as far as the Oscars go and all that stuff, probably the director of the year, one Christopher Nolan, who did this uh, small Alaskan-based uh, thriller uh, remake of uh, a European film uh, called Insomnia, starring Al Pacino, Hilary Swank, and Robin Williams. Really low-rent cast. Yes, yeah. yeah. Low quality, but... Kind of a forgotten about movie too, like some of the others uh, we're talking about. So we'll we'll maybe chat about that as well. Thanks for coming on. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we review no, one hour I, photo? I, I do like me some villains. This one is uh, an episode of your show that does sort of seem like it could be a ranking review episode. Yes, so, we finally got there. So we're playing in my wheelhouse. Someone seems sad. They don't have any friends. It makes me feel bad for them. Who is that? And doesn't have any friends. Sigh. The photo guy at the one-hour place? We really don't know that much about him, you know? I mean, he might even have a lot of friends. He probably has a girlfriend and, and a mommy and a daddy who love him. I don't think he does. I've been doing mini-lab work for over 20 years now. I consider it an important job. Hi, Mrs. Yorkin. Can I get that address again? Yes, Mrs. 326 Serrano Terrace. What you got there? Family photos? Yeah. Yeah, you mind if I take a look? You're a very lucky man, Mr. Yorkin. You have a wonderful family. 
You don't mind my saying so, a very beautiful house, too. I'm sorry? According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word snapshot was originally a hunting term. sentimental type of character I, I i feel like that amalgamation is brought together at points in one hour photo which is a little bit of a forgotten and very uncomfortable movie to watch and i've watched it three times i think i'm starting to i watched it again today just because i'm i still struggle to get my head around it um my story with this one was it was pretty early in the time i lived in new york and i was living in this house with a bunch of uh people around my age um, and there was this girl from Poland who I met who was very fascinated by my huge interest in movies and when she heard I went to this movie she she demanded I write a a review of it so what she then read and I, I'm not quite sure exactly why, why why we did that but she assigned I, you homework assigned me homework because I like to talk about my opinions and at, at the time I used to write reviews and leave them at rainbow cinemas where i was working to whether people hated that or not i don't know but uh um so that wasn't a problem and i think i remember kind of at the time thinking to myself this is almost like the penultimate robin williams performance it's not the greatest robin williams performance but this seems to capture all of his best qualities in one film my issue with it is I kind of felt that the screenplay broke down in the crucial third act. That was my take back in 2002 when I saw it um, in theaters. Then I watched it again. Um, this was kind of my second round preparing for this show. Um, and I really didn't like it that much. Nothing, again, the consistent thing is Robin Williams' performance is near perfect to me. But I, I just really did not care for the film it's not that i didn't like the material this time watching it this afternoon i really lightened on it um and i started to really see its strengths and i'm kind of in a still confused place with it a bit but it's it's always like give me a, a thumbs up review for me uh it might struggle to compete with some of the other movies that we're talking about but i don't know how many robin williams fans have seen this movie as opposed to some of his others and I really think it's worth checking out if you're looking for a, a movie that you didn't see when he was alive and you're still kind of wanting that you're not going to get the Mrs. Doubtfire and uh, Dead Poet Society good feelings from this one he he plays a, a kind of a, in a, a guy in a dying career he is develops photos at a Walmart type of a, a, a location attached to a mall. He's got a boss who is miserable, uh, played 
a bit on the nose by character actor Gary Cole, but I always love to see that guy in He's movies. Known for playing asshole bosses. Though. He is. Um, and his character seems very, very fixated, fixated on this family where Connie Nielsen is the mother. And uh, they have this cute little boy and never really sees the father. But uh, I think he really kind of sees this guy as the luckiest guy in the world. And he develops her photos. Uh, but nobody is really aware that this guy is making duplicates of all of these photos posting them in his home, looking at them all the time, and imagining a life where he was a part of that family. Um, and things get really kind of, to me, crazy in the third act when things completely fall apart for William's character. Uh, but then he's doing some things to, you know, try to perhaps break up this family, mostly out of anger towards his father, who he has figured out that another one of his clients who drops off photos is that they they are having an affair behind Connie Nielsen's back there. So Yeah, he was crazy to begin with, but I yeah. think that discovery Snap. is the thing mm -hmm. that pushes him over. Yeah, I don't know how you feel about the ends of, end of this film, and I, I do want to put the spoiler warning in here because I think we need to we talk about it. But um, So if you have not seen it, and lots of people haven't seen it, I would encourage you to watch it before you listen to that part of our review but um where are you at with one hour photo well i would definitely give it a thumbs up review but i would definitely caution anyone to saying that it is uncomfortable it is but it is uncomfortable on purpose in fact in this list of movies i think it has the most in common with no country for old men <laughs> in that like we know what to expect from stalker cinema right this is going to escalate to the point where there's bodies hitting the floor and there's going to be a climactic showdown between probably the father of the family and the Robin Williams character. And the film defiantly denies you all of that. Um, the other thing is the Robin Williams performance. It's almost completely internalized. Mm -hmm. And when you think of the wacky flubber, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, there. but yeah. you know, I'm, I'm just to pick yeah. a name because he did yeah, lots of them. Yeah, but that, like, yeah. But like the wacky out there Robin Williams broad comedy roles, which is what he's most generally associated with, but not what he's most celebrated for. This is the farthest away from that. In fact, if you didn't know that it was Robin Williams, my guess is that it would take you a few scenes to pick up on it. Mm -hmm. His voice would eventually give him away. I bet you. Yeah. But he looks completely benign mm -hmm. and because of that the family is really slow to recognize the danger and like even when he starts like he buys the kid a toy which is kind of inappropriate but like and that's the second gift he's given he, yeah he gave away a camera because he heard it was the boy's birthday i mean yeah, yeah. but like yeah, that's strange, but like we're not gonna we're not gonna call the cops. We're not gonna cause a problem for this nice old man. <laughs> the other thing that I connected to about the movie is I'm I'm rapidly approaching middle age. I'm I'm due for my midlife crisis, <laughs> and I'm reminded of like my prime in the as the mid late nineties, thinking you know if this artistic career doesn't work out, I could be totally happy running a bookstore or a video store. Thank God I didn't run a bookstore or a video <laughs> store. <laughs> yeah. They're dead mediums. Yeah, I know. And there's something so poetic about him being 
it, this basically kiosk within another store that everybody knows is a dying thing. Even as this movie was coming out, those sort of, they're becoming increasingly rare. Like, um, so it was a dying industry at the time. And this is Sai's entire world. Sai's the Robin Williams character. Yeah. This is his entire world. And it is rapidly going to come to a close without all the other shit, the stuff that's going to go on here. So when he finds out that this family, which he's been obsessing with for a long time, like we see baby pictures. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's been going on for a long time when he realizes that this isn't the perfect family. It shatters his reality. And his reality maybe have been tenuous, but... I think that's where the third act, people take issue with the, the, the craziness. Mm-hmm. When people snap, they snap full bore. That's when, you know, astronauts wear diapers and drive cross country to confront people. Like, it gets out there. And the whole sexual blackmail thing that he's trying to do doesn't make any sense. He's in complete psychosis, like mm-hmm. a lost person there. But because it's nothing like a third act climax for a thriller that we've ever seen, expected, or kind of even wanted... In fact, it's more uncomfortable, arguably, than thrilling. It leaves you in a weird place. I kind of respect the movie for that. I think that the artifice and the coldness, like the weird Kubrickian dream sequences, yeah. and the weird shots of him, the very specific way he has all the pictures up on the wall, yes. feels movie and set designed in a mm-hmm. way that it doesn't exactly take me out of it, because I know why it's there, and it is sort of helping the proceedings. But it actually draws more attention to itself than Robin Williams' performance. Yeah. <laughs> he is so internal that, like, it's hard to feel the danger. So we just have to live with the discomfort. And a lot of people don't like that in the movies. Yeah. They want to be entertained. So yeah. I get why people are up and down about it. But I think if they were doing this by accident, I would say my thumb is down. But they're very purposeful in making us uncomfortable and keeping us there. What you're going to get out of it is what you're going to get out of it. But I think the acting makes it worthwhile. Yes, for sure. And, I mean, we, we have in, I mean, there's, not it's not a great role. It's kind of the cop role. But Eric LaSalle, who was on the TV show ER, is on there. Right. And yeah, he, yeah. he does a good job. And, like, he becomes this example of you look like a good man. And this is, this is you would never do this stuff. We have a little bit of a, except it's delivered by Williams, so maybe it, it doesn't feel quite as like attacked on. That's the biggest criticism of Psycho, is that they stop give the doctor the doctor everything. come in to explain everything. Here, in a way, we do have Psy explaining everything uh, initially about like the thing that's in front of him was this you know stalking of this family and this what's going on in this hotel room. Uh, towards the end of the film, uh, but then it starts to, you know, veer into uh, I, I, a good parent wouldn't do this and this and this, and then he starts talking about himself, and this is why he's he's so um, he's withdrawn from other people and on the outside looking in. So I, I guess like sometimes I when we've talked about some of these villains, <clears throat> and I'm like, yeah, I can't wait for that villain to get away. Hannibal Lecter, escape all this, whatever. And you're like, should we be cheering for this person? Should we be feeling sorry for Psy? I kind of think still we should. There's and that's room. what they want us to, to do. And it, that's where it's good to have Williams for that. There's but then he can turn on the, the scary 
just as well as he could turn on the, you know, the, our, we our, don't have our to feelings. excuse his behavior, but we can pity his position in a way that it's kind of harder to with, I don't know, like the John Malkovich character in In the Line of Fire mm-hmm. or, or Javier Bardem, right? Who's yeah. definitely wearing a black hat in that yes. movie. This guy took a long time to get to where he was, and he has nothing else in his life. His, his apartment looks like an empty hospital room. It's like I said, a little bit over designed in that way, mm-hmm. but like there's nothing real about his life except his family, and then he finds out that that's not real for him. And uh, there's a scene in The Shining uh, where jumping all over the place, where Shelley Duvall interrupts Jack Nicholson while he's writing, and he like just tears a strip out of her. Whatever I'm doing in here, just do not come in here. Yeah, the confrontation is so uncomfortable. And when he does the switch between this is the greatest family in the world to, like, it's all an illusion. In fact, it's all wrong. The exchanges become incredibly uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> that's one of my least favorite scenes in The Shining, which I love that movie. But, like, it just makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's just that scene. Whereas this movie seems to want to almost live there. Yeah. And I, I get why people will be off coke by that. And every scene with a boy just feels really wrong, um, but it's it's, it's not, not in a, it's not a sexual thing or anything like predatory. that. No, it's no, not at all. But I mean, he, he's the only adult at this soccer practice, and he walks home. I'm just like, no, you're 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 gonna get in so much trouble over this. But then there's this kind of this heartwarming scene early in the film, and very very early, where uh, Connie Nielsen is talking talking to the boy J- Jake, I think is the name of the boy. And he's saying like he feels bad for people who on the outside they kind of seem like they're trying to be happy, but they're really sad. And uh, and and she mentioned Sai, and and she like she hadn't really clocked that as much and saying oh you're such a great boy and all that like there's I I think that's kind of what we're supposed to be feeling. But I, I I'm still my my problem was and sometimes I we've run into this a little bit and thank you for helping me get my head around the end of hereditary. Speaking of us going all over the place okay. here on a reference to uh to one of your episodes. because uh-huh. um, the ending there bothered me a, a bit but less so now. And still here I mean we were led to believe one thing about what's going on in that hotel room. And and then we see it's not really that. And I kind of felt like, again, going back to my first reaction to the film, that I was lied to by the filmmakers with that and, and where it was leading, as opposed to, whoa, what a what a great surprise or what a I didn't see that coming. Um I didn't see it coming, but I kind of thought, okay, what what really what was the point of that? That whole making uh, making them in the hotel, in the, room, like, right? hotel room, not touching each other, but in all these pornographic poses, and then we kind of see what what the payoff is to that, and when wielding he, a knife and he and, sabotaged the photo reel, right? He puts some photos into the family pictures, yeah. so that the Connie Nielsen character, who is by the way a consistently underrated actress, I didn't like her in in Gladiator, and I think my my feelings about that clouded that. Review I wrote in two thousand and two. Right. Now I'm well removed from Gladiator, and I can kind of go, yeah, See, she's really good in this. Like, I forgot that she was in Gladiator. Yeah, so how's yeah, that? yeah, but I don't know. I don't think she's always been pretty solid. Connie Nielsen was supposed to see that, and that was supposed to end the marriage, yeah. probably. And then Robin Williams could sort of swoop in and somehow insinuate the position, whether or not he got married or just became Uncle Sai who lived yeah. with him. This was all the imagined picture in his head. Yes, but instead, 
She weighs this indiscretion against the marriage, the house, the kids, and she decides she wants to try and make the marriage work in spite of this. Mm -hmm. And Sai is just like, again, that is not what was supposed to happen. What's wrong with these people is one of the famous lines from the What do I have to do to Mm -hmm. convince her? And this, in his broken mind, is what he'd have to do to convince her, Mm. right? And no, it doesn't make sense. But in another worse movie, he would have killed the woman who was having the affair with the husband, right? Mm. And then, like, blackmailed the husband, or, like, it would have become this stormy night rooftop knife fight, right? And (laughs) the movie just doesn't go there. Okay, again, total spoilers for the last scene of this movie, but... He doesn't actually take pictures of them. Like the pictures he lays out are of shirt, shower curtains and toilets and sinks. And, and I'm like, I, I was like, what? Like, did, did that entire scene in, in the hotel room, was that all in his head? Because we had other moments that were all in his head. Was that all in his head? But then why is he sitting, other than the fact that he sent those creepy photos of his boss's daughter to him uh, to send a message... Like, what, why is he sitting there with the police and, and like, this big scene with, it seems like, half of the police force in whatever city this is chasing him A down? A lot is made of this old man's arrest. That is true. Yes, that is uh, one of the... That's, like, Lee Harvey Oswald level of... Uh, yeah. Of uh, this 60-year-old stalker does not require a SWAT team and two-thirds of the police force. Okay, I will take that hit. As far as the photographs, yes, it's a question mark. But I think, and maybe I'm working to defense the, the screenplay writer. It was meant to be a talking point, like how much of it was in his head, mm-hmm. what was in there. I think that he did have to force them into that hotel room at the very least, because otherwise, why is he being? arrested so forcibly. He was arrested at the hotel for So my some interpretation reason. is that's what he was mm-hmm. seeing. Like, there was no difference between the as sort of, like I say, hospital clean, bare white aesthetic, boring furniture in his house than there was between the posed pornography that he was trying to create. It was all the same now. Yeah. Nothing mattered. Like, I mean, and, and to me, this would be a choice in a lesser movie to have him go and, and kidnap the kid or something. Right. But that would be the right police presence and, if and he had taken the kid. I would understand why we're having this big scene uh, where he's on the ground being arrested and, and all that. But anyway, that that's that's my that's my only cross to bear with this it's film. It's perfect, but I appreciate the ambition. It of is. It. And I, I just think of all the Robin William, you know, either dark comedy or villain roles... I would. I kind of think, performance-wise, this is his best. I'm not saying that the movie we're talking about later on is a worse film than this one, but I think as far as the how fully realized this villainous character, and I think you could probably turn it around and feel sorry for him, and maybe he's he's not like as as much of a villain as some of the others we're about to talk about. But that's uh, that's kind of where I am there. I I I like it. I like it. On a now kind of a third watch, probably the most I've liked it, but I'm not all the way there. For people who are fans of Robin Williams, 100, percent and for people who can handle an uncomfortable thriller, yeah. yes. Yeah. But no, not for everyone. Not for everyone. Stop! Look, he's gunning for trouble. Double O seven. It spells Bond.
He's the idol of every woman. Who are you? Bond. James Bond. The envy of every man. The nemesis of the treacherous Mr. Goldfinger. Galore. Isn't it customary to grant the condemned man his last request? You've asked for this. Come and purr over Honor Blackman as Pussy Galore. The female who is all feline. Also starring Gert Rober as Goldfinger. International cheat. International menace. Gentlemen! Goldfinger, why weren't we told the New York and the West Coast weren't on this? Goldfinger? I made a delivery. Where is my money? And you owe me one million bucks. Goldfinger, the man with a finger in every pie. His goal, Fort Knox, the world's biggest bank. His enemy, 007, the world's wiliest, toughest gentleman agent with a license to kill. 007, it spells Bond. James Bond, mixing business with girls and thrills. Girls and fun. Girls and danger. The hotter the danger, the cooler he takes it. I think you've made your point, Goldfinger. Thank you for the demonstration. Choose your next witticism carefully, Mr. Bond. It may be your last. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to buy. you if you're a James Bond fan, but I, I know that in the 60s, this was the most groundbreaking action series of all time. And when we're hitting 1964 with Goldfinger, this became a, a classic at that time. And for many years, I, I, I've heard fans of the James Bond films go back to this one uh, quite a bit. And there's always a the question about is Connery the best James Bond? I never, when it was at first announced, thought that Daniel Craig would be somebody that I would have cast and thought that was a great idea. And once we got to the end of that, I'm like, oh, he was great. During the Pierce Brosnan years, even though those movies weren't as good as they probably should have been, I was like, Pierce Brosnan's a pretty perfect James Bond. So I just feel like the time that you're in, sometimes that's where you go. Sean Connery, I think, was the biggest movie star to ever play James Bond. Um, is the biggest movie star who will ever play James Bond. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't see anybody getting there. And he was the original, and I, I still kind of lean towards him being the best. Goldfinger has arguably the the most memorable 
theme song from its opening, Goldfinger, uh, Goldfinger, um, which I will, I, I will not sing. I was joking that I was going <laughs> to sing with you. I was going to sing Goldfinger with you, but I just rewatched it again last night. I know that song is going to be in my head for the next two weeks. I'll be like driving to work, and all of a sudden I'll be like Goldfinger. And you are not Shirley Bassey. I don't no, I am not Shirley Bassey. <laughs> no, and I mean again. I, I don't know if there's anybody who's completely nailed the voice and the sound of a James Bond song. I know we've we've Adele and Billie Eilish and all these people now, and I like the songs that they've created for the last few James Bond movies, but this is one that most people go to as either number one or number two uh, for the songs. And we have a, a pretty interesting villain in Goldfinger, because when we first see this guy get down the stairs in this sequence in Miami Beach, he looks more comfortable to me going to the bowling alley in the big Lebowski than he does as being like this international villain with all this technology and obsession with gold. And if you cross him, he is going to kill you by covering you in gold as happens quite famously to one of the many uh, Bond girls who appear in this film. The real life story of that particular action is really really horrible because this beautiful woman who played this role who is covered pretty much naked in this gold paint which had lead in it i think she got cancer and she died because of this move yeah so i i now knowing that if i'm eating my popcorn in 1964 i have no idea that that's going to happen 2024 we get to that scene and i'm like oh safety precautions in place for actors where where were you i mean but we've come a long way apparently yeah. in wizard of oz they rained flakes of asbestos down yes on the they did snow. yes on all of, yes <laughs> i mean and yeah the oh the munchkins are and how they were treated is a whole different uh, oh it's just just awful um anyway in this case james bond is tracking goldfinger and he's discovering that he's got some sort of uh uh this big project or this big uh plan um and he's trying to get in to figure out what it is and he nearly gets killed i would might argue this is you know the closest uh not to spoil any other james bond movies we talk about but the closest that james bond comes to getting killed because he is sitting there he is tied down there's no way for him to escape and there's a laser that is about to cut him in half Specifically attacking his manhood, which yes. I think is kind of the point. Yeah. yeah, yes, absolutely the point. Very censored time for cinema still, but James Bond somehow they found ways to put in the innuendos. I think, and I'm, and I'm curious to talk because I mean I know lots of women who are huge fans of, of James Bond, like the whole the whole way through. <laughs> the level and it's kind of the point, but the level of sexism and also the level of racism in this film. Looking at truly jaw yeah, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> bad but i i enjoy this as uh for what it is it's an entertainment it's an action movie it is everything that you would you know kind of go for and um expect from a james bond movie certainly i think uh, there's a generation of people who would be more familiar with the austin power parody moments from the this particular james bond film the and then Goldfinger thing. itself, oh, but uh, but my my thumb is up because I I just I still like all of the pieces and I I'm still wrestling with that judging a movie of the 1960s and the 2020s we run into this a lot with 80s movies and 
Now, like, there's some stuff in 90s movies, too, that is just kind of doesn't sit right, too. I think there's stuff 10 years ago that doesn't sit right. So, I mean, we're, we're not going to win that game. But are we going to condemn this movie for what it was at the time? I, I'm not really willing to do that. It was 1964. It was 64. And let's be real. It was a very different time. It would be weird if it stood up this way. <laughs> Speaking of Goldfinger. The Exorcist. <laughs> the Exorcist recently turned 50 years old. Yes. To me, that is probably the dividing line. Very few movies can survive five decades yeah. and not feel their age. Start to look long in the tooth. Start to feel dated in a way that actually starts to chip away at the quality of the movie. There are movies that get past this. I think The Exorcist does. Mm -hmm. I don't know that Goldfinger completely does, but when people talk about another random jump, they say Jaws started the summer movie season. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that may be true, but it certainly wasn't the first blockbuster. No. Goldfinger was probably among the first, like, global blockbusters. It was. And I'm going to, when we, last time I'll reference another film for a few minutes here. <laughs> At least <laughs> <When>, two. <laughs> When uh, you did the Western episode and we did uh, the Man with No Name, um, yeah. Which one did we do? The for a uh, fistful of dollars was it or a fistful of dollars? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I said that it was in a word. Forgive me. I fucking conic. And Goldfinger, and Sean Connery as James Bond, mm -hmm. and that villain are I fucking conic. Yes. And I don't care how dated the movie is. <laughs> And it's incredibly dated, by the way. <laughs> I cannot take that away from this movie. Good. But seriously, patting the girl on the behind. Yes, that's the right. The men are talking. Holy shit. Yeah, that's How? early too. That's like two yeah. scenes in and we're just like. And that's our hero. Ugh. The yeah. funny thing is, is like, I feel like James Bond is sort of a statement on the male fantasy. Yeah. But I don't think that James Bond always knew that it was a statement about the male fantasy. And I think that is why women like James Bond, because it's a fantasy. He's the guy who can have any chick he wants and can kill any bad guy he wants, and he can look good doing it, and he's a fantasy, and it would be considered a reward to be one of his conquests in certain, you know, yeah. mentalities. Yeah. And if you want to embrace it on a fantasy level, great. Because if you want to take it seriously... It's not going to hold together. It will fall apart in your hands. But everything to do with Sean Connery as James Bond works as long as you're not going to be offended by his sexism. But we're here to talk about the villain. And the yes. first thing that I thought about was like some combination of like W.C. Fields <laughs> and like Boss Hopper, the bad guy from the Muppet movie. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, he does not look like your typical Bond villain. And he is not a physical threat. He has his sidekick odd job, who is his physical threat. Oh, yeah, that, that guy is bad. Like, he... You cannot... <laughs> but again, a, a classic sort of Bond henchman in that way. And later mm -hmm. on, we'd have Jaws, the huge guy with the metal teeth and yes. all of these other things. I feel like that kind of got missed in later Bond movies and the Pierce Brosnan and the... And the in the Daniel Craig, Craig age. Yeah. but um, yes, we see him one of the first times Bond thwarts this villain. He's just playing a card game, 
and Bond rigs it so he loses because he knows the guy's cheating. Yes. And it's a petty, like, it's a few dollars. It means nothing to him. The money isn't it. It's the fact that he lost. Mm -hmm. He cannot stand it. And for all the evil things he does, for trying to kill Bond, for murdering the women who are peripherally involved, yeah. like, we hate him for his pettiness. We hate him for that <laughs> small human thing yeah. that, like, it has <coughs> to be me or else it's not good enough. <laughs> well, and he is just as arrogant as James Bond. and uh, He's a mirror in some ways. Yes. Gert Fro Froby? Froby? Yes. Yeah, is and the name of the actor. He does a great job. I mean, I don't... Performing is phonetically, by the mm -hmm. way. He did not speak English. Yes. <laughs> so... and that, but that actually worked to the advantage because he has some famous lines that kind of come across, but they're, they're said like a villain. He yes. says them. But it's because he was, you know. But it's an interesting speaking choice. the way he like was. They must have really wanted that guy because, like, even if he was the greatest actor in his native tongue, that is a hell of a handicap <laughs> to give somebody, yes. right? So, like, it was obviously a choice and an interesting one because he is not what you typically picture in your head as a Bond villain, and yet he is kind of the Bond villain, unless you count Blofeld, I don't know, but like, mm -hmm. I don't know, I, Goldfinger is sort of the most famous James Bond movie. I, I, th I think so, I mean... First Bond movie, to answer you, the first question you asked, yeah. that I ever saw in theater was The Living Daylights, I believe it was the Timothy oh, Dalton okay. one, I was quite young at the time, mm -hmm. and a guy gets mauled by a shark in it, I found it kind of disturbing. Oh yeah, you and your <laughs> yeah. shark thing, yeah, uh, um, yeah. I wasn't expecting it, again... Uh, if I knew I was sitting down to watch Jaws, I would have been fine with it, but I was bothered by that. Yeah. And then I did watch the Pierce Brosnan ones, but honestly, I found them to be pretty diminishing returns. Yeah. Gold, I, GoldenEye was such a hit, but nice start. But but also the the video game became so much bigger than the movie <laughs> to this day. Uh, um, but then, yeah, you're right. I mean, it started to get Razzie nominations kind of towards the end of the time, but I don't know if that was Pierce Brosnan's fault. No, I think no. it was just. The, uh, the Daniel studio Craig probably. is the quote real world James Bond. I don't know if I could quite agree with that. It's it's. There's still some leaps of logic, yeah. yes. But uh, they're still playing that line where it is this male fantasy. It is the guy looks amazing, always gets the girl, always kills a bad guy. I mean, they played with him getting the girl in in the new Bond series, but all of that's established here. You mentioned Austin Powers. The funny thing is, is when Austin Powers was made in the early nineties. They weren't necessarily directly aping James Bond. They were aping like in like Flint and a lot of the wannabe James Bond movies of the 60s. They were so cheesy yes. that they were uh, hilarious accidentally. The funny thing is, is that watching Goldfinger now, there is a large percentage of that there. Like you could watch it for kitsch. That's not what I get out of it. I mean, I, I still try to watch it as a straight James Bond adventure. But, you know, it's one of those things where, like, if I'm watching with our kids, I would have to, like, yeah, but we wouldn't probably say that nowadays. And this is not how we treat women, mm -hmm. and we know this. Mm -hmm. I recently watched Clue with my boys, and I oh, had yeah. to remind them that there was a different attitude towards homosexuality <laughs> yes. in the 80s. I still think that you can enjoy the movie, but it might be worth having that conversation <laughs> if kids are involved. So, um, You'll have to be an adult when you watch this movie. If you want to get all woke and upset about it, if you want to pick a fight with Goldfinger, you can. But you'll be depriving yeah. yourself of a very, very entertaining piece of entertainment. You, you will it, win, you'll win that battle, but you will lose. Like You just need to just 
experience it as it is. And it's 1964. It's now, again, yeah. 2024. It would be weird if we were like, yeah, it's like it was made yesterday. Yeah. Like, that would be, that would be strange. Yeah. It, it is a 60-year-old movie as of this year. So, I mean... Bond is evolving. And yeah. it continues to evolve. But that central truth is that, yeah, male fantasy. Put him in the center mm-hmm. of it. I think that's why, like, a gender-switched James Bond doesn't necessarily work. You could do, like, a super spy female, but, like... I think that James Bond is a dude because yes. like yes, that's James Bond. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not being possessive of James Bond. I just feel like that's that's the, that's the franchise. That's this is the ultimate spy dude. Yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't matter who is playing him. No, but I think Connery was a good choice. I think Connery. I mean, I never met the man. I would have. No. I don't know uh, how it would have gone. Um, but I think he had a, a very high opinion of himself, <laughs> and that worked well for playing this character. But I'm not sure he was, he wasn't completely, he was about to become the movie star that he became. And then later years, it became a little bit difficult oh. about things. But he could act as well. Oh, I yeah. mean, you know, know, a lot of people maybe. didn't give him credit as an actor here, maybe because of the James Bond films, and they thought, well, he was kind of playing that over and over again. I don't really buy it but i knew sean Connery mainly from his post highlander roles yes highlander and uh untouchables onward were where i was the most familiar with him i kind of backed into some of his earlier roles because of that he always was the guy with the beard and the gray hair to me yeah and then when i saw him in these early james bond movies initially i was just like oh wow i do agree that he's an epic superstar but like on some level like you hear that he was almost gandalf in lord of the rings and i'm kind of glad (laughs) That Sean Connery wasn't Gandalf. You hear yeah. that he was almost uh, um, the Lawrence Fishburne character in The Matrix. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and they're like, I, I just wouldn't it wouldn't have worked. Just, but him as him as Indiana Jones' father for sure was yeah. inspired casting him in oddly enough like in the Hunt for Red October yeah. and like he he made all as, of these roles which shouldn't on the as surface. A Scottish work. Russian, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm I I mean I. I was always happy to see him in a movie. Just uh, and and whether he likes it or not, yeah. and I don't think he did, but no. he is fucking James Bond. He is. <laughs> like, yeah. Sorry, dude. And if like that's what your handle, if you're stuck with, it's it's not like it hurt his career. No, like, still, it helped his career big time. He, he was working until he didn't want to work anymore. Basically, yeah. lived on a Caribbean island for his last years. I mean, it's you know even when he quit James Bond, they. Back to dump truck the money back <laughs> to get him come back for another movie, and he did it. You never say like, never again, which to, I haven't seen that right. movie, but uh, yeah. a lot of these old Bond movies blur in my mind. I did. Yeah, they do I watched Goldfinger for this review, obviously, yeah. so I know what we're talking. It was kind about. of a separate on its own yeah. thing, yeah. But yeah, if you would ask me to delineate a lot of these, ones, no, they do blur. But uh, yeah. Goldfinger is one of the essential Bond movies. Do you need to watch every James Bond movie? No, but if you're doing a highlight reel of James Bond, yeah. this is on it, or yeah. else you're not paying attention. I, yeah, and I, I, I mean, I have to think about it a little bit more. Maybe I should have thought about it before going into this, but I'm leaning towards this as my favorite Connery James Bond film of all of them. But I, I enjoyed each and every one, and I know there's there's some that were there higher expectations, and they didn't quite meet those expectations as much but this one i i think they they didn't realize how big a hit that this was going to what this was going to turn into and 
we're still talking about to this day, 60 years later. So, But yeah, sexist and racist, that's definitely there. Yeah, but Goldfinger is a great <laughs> villain. Yep. Um, and I think he's somewhat meaner than Robin Williams in one hour photo. <laughs> One man's woman. One man's heaven is another man's reason to raise hell. Meet Don Logan. Cigarette. What? This? No, I'm not going to put it out. Are you definitely retired? You're needed in London this Friday. It's a bit sudden, isn't it? It's not sudden. Preparation, preparation, preparation. Just say my name for me. When I think of all the birds you could have had, you had to pick a dirty DD. I love her with all my heart. You're the problem, you Dr. White, Onkin, Jamrag, Arkin, Spunk, Bubba. Your middle name ungrateful or what? And you got nothing to say. It's gonna stand there like Porky Pig, hiding behind your wife's skirt, your ex-porn star's wife's skirt. I'm happy here. I'm gonna let you be happy, what should I? Do what Don wants. Who's behind this? Teddy Bess. Mr. Black Magic himself. Go hurt you. Do what Don says. Are you saying no? No, what are you saying? I'm just going to have to turn this opportunity down. No, you're just going to have to turn this opportunity yes. Because Don... Do the job. No, Don, yes. No. Doesn't. I can't. You can't. I can't. You can't. Do. Do it. And I said no. No. I know you love me because I feel strong. Ray Winston. Ben Kingsley. Stung, stung, crooked stung. Ian McShane. Sexy Beast. Back off, I'm beautiful. There's a bit of the beast in everyone. Back in 2001, I was actually living in Sydney, Australia. And um, I was doing my teaching internship, I, I, and I was... Uh, staying with uh, some distant relatives there but I didn't know a lot of people and so kind of my go-to in a little bit I mentioned New York before on my days off there I I would go to the movies I saw a lot of movies kind of these two years where I wasn't living in, in Canada in the fall and um, Sexy Beast was a movie I saw these previews I would I kind of heard these reviews I would like kind of look at and try to listen to Siskel and Ebert shows at the time and that kind of thing. Um, Siskel was dead at this point. I think it was Roper and, and Ebert. But, and this one just looked really, really interesting. Um, and it just teased out this idea that we are going to see Ben Kingsley as one of the most fearsome villains that you ever saw. And I had watched a, a movie called Nil by Mouth that uh, is kind of a forgotten movie. Oldman. Gary Oldman wrote and directed it and it was kind yeah. of about his his upbringing it's kind of is very dark and that's where i first encountered ray ray weinstone and really loved what he did it was dark material and when i went to see sexy beast and we're starting off we have to wait for ben kingsley to show up 
and it's a lot of Ray Winstone and his friends, and they're in Spain, and they're talking about like the entire tone as soon as 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 Ben Kingsley is going to be coming to say, you know, uh, you need to be part of this job and get Ray Winstone back into this London uh, gangster world. Everybody loses the color in their face. They're sitting in this restaurant and a bomb is dropped in their lives. I love this movie. I love this movie so much. Uh, I watched it again today with a commentary. I love it just as much as I loved it, what now, 23 years ago almost, that I when I, when I saw it in theaters in Sydney, Australia. And I, I kind of thought at the time it'd be one of those movies I would kind of carry through and be like an independent movie crime film that would carry a bit of a cult status or even farther into the Academy Awards. It was all kind of about Ben Kingsley's performance. Understandably. Understandably, and he should have won the Academy Award for this, and I stick with that, and I just think not enough people gave this movie a chance and saw it. And the fact that this guy played Gandhi, <laughs> and then, like, this is when I was like, oh, Ben Kingsley can do anything. I, I should have clued into it before this, but, you know, and, and it was maybe a year or two after that sound of the House of the Sound and Fog came out too, where it was just completely different role where he was amazing. But he blew me away. And at the time I had been like recently in the drama department and I was learning more and more about breath control and voice and uh, physicality and 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 physical verbing and all that i saw everything in kingsley's performance and there's a section of this film now i may have exaggerated this in my first viewing when i was so excited about this but there's this monologue he gives late in the film where i remember the first time i saw it i didn't catch him taking a breath and he was talking non-stop for like five minutes thick cockney accent uh very difficult uh dialogue uh, again, according to Kingsley and the producer of the film, nobody improvised or ad-libbed. This was scripted exactly as is. The writing is great. The editing is great. It's directed by Jonathan Glazer. This is his debut film. Yeah. This was a first-time DP, first-time designers. Everything about this film is great. It is a tight film. I think it's under 90 minutes. Why do more people not know about Sexy Beast? This is not a recommendation to people who like lighthearted movies. If you loved him in Gandhi, I don't think you're necessarily, uh, unless you're wanting to go on the journey to the most opposite of Gandhi ever, uh, are going to love Sexy Beast if you don't like crime movies or movies about really horrible people. But this is a great film, which is set in Spain and was actually shot in Spain but is also set in the underworld of London. And this was the first time I saw Ian McShane. <laughs> Ian McShane. And so this is a great villains episode. And we are, we are talking about Ben Kingsley. But Ian McShane is so cold and so scary in this film. And after that, then he was Deadwood. And then he's shown up in a million films as a character actor. I don't think he's always used as well as he, as he could be used. Um, I always love him from John Wick. Yeah, uh, yeah. He shows up in John Wick, of course, and that's his most famous role. Now, I don't think the John Wick crowd, even as dark as John Wick goes, would recognize like this guy. So this is not a movie for everybody, but this is definitely a movie for Jason James Dubray. Yeah. Uh, I'm hoping it's a movie for Larry uh, uh, 
uh, Ecclesiastes Par- Parsons. Okay, That's well, not your real name, but I, I think I think is James Lawrence Parsons. Pa- James Lawrence. I did know that actually. Yeah. Yes. Uh, this is a movie. I think as you people are probably hearing right now, that people who like it like it a lot, mm-hmm. and I do indeed count myself amongst okay. one of them. Okay. Uh, this would be like a fight. Yeah. Like a, yeah. If we. I think Jonathan Glazer is a fascinating director yes. because. All of the movies of his I've seen, I just watched Birth, actually, for the first mm-hmm. time a while ago. I'm still trying to make heads or tails of it to a degree, but it is a fascinating it is. movie. And this is a fascinating movie, and that Scarlett Johansson uh, science fiction movie that he did. Under the Skin. Under the Skin. Yeah. And Nearly the, made my that horror show yeah. uh, list for your... And he's got a yeah. new one out called The Zone of Interest, which, which is apparently quite devastating. has to do with people living right next to a concentration camp. And apparently we don't see inside the concentration camp, and it's devastating. I haven't seen that movie, but I believe it. Because everything I've seen from this guy is devastating. I'm a huge Radiohead fan. I'm not talking about movie. Jumping to to a band. Yeah. He directed this really bizarre video for Karma Police, where it's just Tom York sitting in the backseat of a car, and it's chasing this guy down a road, and the guy lights matches, and a stream (laughs) of fire catches up. I saw that move, that video in like the early '90s. Never forgotten it. Mm-hmm. Same director here. Yeah. So like the dude is just like he, he he's kind of like uh, David Fincher. He got his music video like, that kind of led into doing feature films, yeah. and I think that's a great background. And he is visually amazing, but he's also super interesting. And like you say, the screenplay is on point. I understand that all of the marketing of the movie is built around Ben Kingsley because Ben Kingsley is a force of fucking nature in this movie. Like, he is amazing. The thing is, though, that I kind of wish they'd been more balanced about is that every other part of this movie is as good yes. as that performance. That's what that's what won me over. I was I was ready for this great performance, but from the very first scene, it's like, this is amazing. This is so good. Particularly viewing it this time, because just over a year ago, I did the El Camino. I walked across Spain. Mm-hmm. I've actually not been to specific shots where they shot it, not as far as I know. I was in Madrid for a while as well, but like, um, I could have sort of, in a weird way, like imagine what it would be like to live in that like not to visit but to live in Mm -hmm. that environment and to speak of the john wick world i guess this is a world where there are no good guys everybody that we meet in this movie is corrupt to some level or another but it's also a little bit real in that this is a world where crime does impact in fact pay and it pays quite well (laughs) winston is retired with his wife who he loves sincerely and they have a really kind of cute like interesting dynamic Mm -hmm. they live this beautiful life he's trying to get this ultimate suntan and he figure he's he's taken all these risks he's built his nest egg and he's earned his retirement and within the realm and rules of this world i guess he's not wrong but everybody knows from the second that they see ben kingsley walk (laughs) in just like Uses the C word in yeah. his first line there. Well, that, and, that's yeah. a very British gangster thing. Like, yeah, they, they, it, they just lots. throw profanities yeah. around like crazy. I think that's authentic. It's not necessarily. It's, it is. It's not necessarily excessive, but no, it's excessive. But <laughs> but it's second, excessive in the world. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. Yeah. The second he shows up, they know, and within a few seconds, the audience knows, is that the answer is you say yes to this guy, or you have to kill him because he is not going to take no for an answer. 
And in spite of this, Ray Winstone struggles and tries and patiently tries to find any kind of like chink or any kind of sense, any kind of reason in this guy. And he knows. It just doesn't exist. The thing that I wanted to talk to you about upon revisiting mm -hmm. this is the rabbit imagery. Yeah. There is a couple of, there's an overt dream sequence right after, uh, I believe it's right after Ben Kingsley's shown up. Um, that A little bit before. Maybe it's then, the He got the news that he's coming. Right. He's, and on he's route. seeing that this. He's it's on the, route. It's the table that he sat at when he got the news, eating his calamari. Yeah. And he has the previously they'd been hunting and with this uh, the Spanish boy who does it, uh, jobs for him, and then his best friend, and they see this 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 hair, and and then the the boy is about to try to shoot it, and then the gun falls apart, and they kind of laugh about it, but then this this hair become more and more. Be Becomes the sexy beast. Uh, the, well, that's yeah. where, like, why this title? Why sexy beast? And that was one of the things that I was... Because even from a marketing standpoint, what does that mean? How does that sell in your movie, right? It's not an erotic thriller, necessarily. It's it's a kind of a gangster movie, but mm -hmm. unlike <clears throat> any gangster movie you've ever seen. Yeah. So, upon watching it this time, I feel like the sexy beast is reference to this, this rabbit beast that he sees. Mm -hmm. And it's very, like, creepy, boogeyman, Donnie Darko, like like scary rabbit in his dreams yes. and he sees it a little bit briefly sitting at his table and we see it very at the very end like as if it's uh, at the bottom of the pool somehow holding <laughs> the corpse within its coffin somehow yes. and is that beast like the symbolic of ray winstone's inner animal that in his way what what was ben kingsley character does exist in him He's just got it tampered mm -hmm. down mm -hmm. into the symbol of this rabbit. I don't know that that's what it is, Jason. I'm just asking. But yeah. the thing that I walked away from last time wasn't how amazing Ben Kinsley is. Which he is. I'm not no. going to say that he wasn't. It was like, what was the deal with the rabbit imagery? And why did I care about the friend and the, and the wife so much? Like... They, they were very, very up for collateral damage in this movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and I didn't want anything to happen to any of them. No, Even no. though they're all... They're kind of <laughs> likable, horrible people. Yeah. Right? Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of animal imagery, and they have the actors looking like animals at different times. And I, I, I feel like this is, again, just pure... I'm talking about something without any evidence. I didn't, yeah. never talked to the filmmakers. I didn't get any insight about that because I listened to the commentary on purpose to see if they talked about it. They talked loosely about the rabbit emerging as, um, as the terror and fear for the Ray Winstone character. But then that rabbit is used for different purposes or the hare is used for different purposes towards the end. Again, make to the Sexy Beast title... There was some, a lot of sexual imagery. I mean, this overt, there's an orgy in in in, in here. Uh, the London you know, Criminal Underground is incestuous it, yes, in a very sexual it, way. It is, and and um, a couple things I picked up just just watching it this time. Uh, the the big scene with like at the beginning, we see that that perfect suntan, and we're seeing like a lot of Ray Winstone, mm -hmm. and it's so hot, and he's talking about how hot it is. And he takes this uh, this pack of ice, and where does he stick it? He sticks it on his balls, right? Right, because he needs to keep those cool for you know satisfying his his wife, I think. <laughs> and the only weakness that the Don Logan, the Ben Kingsley character, has 
is that he is still in love with again the best friend's wife. Uh, wife. He's willing to say the most evil personal thing at a drop of he a hat. He does. He has. He's zero no filter. filter. There's no filter. He's like, um, oh, why, why don't I take you a tour, on a tour of my house? Yeah, I will do that after I take a piss. Yeah. I mean, like n- nobody says that when they're five minutes into being a guest in somebody's home. But there, there, there are kind of only two weaknesses really that I see that this guy has. They both are involving women. Jackie is the name of this uh, rather gorgeous blonde woman uh, who he had sex with before. Her husband doesn't know this, but then uh, he, you know, this is something that he shares. And there's a thought like he could call on the phone and request you come to London or you die. But he comes in person because he knows he's going to see Jackie. Yeah. That's a weakness. And also then we have Dee Dee, who is uh, Ray Winstone's wife. Who I liked who, a lot. She, she's really good. And, I mean, he says stuff about that she was a porn star and everybody had her and all of this stuff to try to and get. Ray Winstone doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, he, he really doesn't. He's, he, he's in love and he just... You know, in a lesser movie, that would be a thing that would get him. She knows who I am. I know who she is. But he's afraid of her. Yeah. You know, he's afraid of her. And spoilers for the movie, stop, watch it, enjoy it for yourself. But we're going to talk about this next part. Who is the person who has the first blow? She does. Yeah. Yeah. She takes out the big, like other people try and they're trying to figure it out. But but she's the one who does it. She's the one who, she, when... You know, this great scene happens uh, where uh, where Kingsley is, is talking to himself and reviewing this conversation in the mirror, and he's getting more and more and more upset, and he's pissing on the floor. And and really, they were talking about describing like a, a, a child who's having a temper tantrum. And he goes into their bedroom and starts beating on Ray Winston, and she covers him and, and yells for him to get out. He could take her, but he backs away. Yeah. Like, the, the, so... So I think there's something in there. I don't completely know what it is, but there's something in there with the power that women have over men, you know, and and being uh, uh, who you've slept with and and who you are are with or whatever that this is connected to how prominent you are and whether you're going to be moving towards happiness or not. But there's this fear that you're you're not going to be able to do that, or he won't be with the woman that that he's fantasized about for all of these years who can't stand him. And like he's a, a social pariah because he just says all of these things. I, I was kind of focusing on that a little bit. So that's where I think the sexy beast idea comes from. But I still, at times I thought, is Ray Winstone the sexy beast? Or is it the sex drive inside of him? Or is it is it Ben Kingsley? Or is it this rabbit? Or at one point I kind of thought this time, it was Ian McShane playing playing this uh, as they describe him, like he's kind of this the general or he's the head of the the mafia leading this this if Ben Kingsley organization will take so. orders from him, then you better fucking be careful. Yeah, Teddy Best is the name of the character, and I he he might be because there's this threat. Well, maybe I'll come to Spain and uh, and uh, and see you sometime. That ruins any happily ever after right. as much as we think we're kind of you know getting something that's that's happier i think like the the false idea that at the beginning ray winstone is like living the dream he has this perfect life and then it all gets taken away by a super unhappy sociopathic character there's so many great scenes like kingsley's 
screen time. I, it was right to put him in supporting actor because he doesn't actually, it's a short movie and he doesn't have a ton of screen time. Makes full use of every moment he's in. Oh, he consumes I every second. I, I love <laughs> everything that happens. And like we were just talking about James Bond and like the homophobia comes up in a lot of stuff. Uh, but I think in this, this London underworld, there's a lot of homophobia, but there's also kind of an interesting thing with James Fox, who's the bank guy who's the victim of this big heist that's happening to and Ian McShane has that's when he looks like an animal because he is at this orgy and he has sex with this man um that's where he gets the information and that, but the to get the information so that he can you know get but a big score business and pleasure yes and again I think that's another implied thing mm-hmm. there's something intense about all of these confrontations but, and adding that sexual angle to it i don't know i think they can all be shared the sexy beast thing like when we see um ray winston at the beginning laying out in the sun you know yeah. trying to get his perfect suntan and like you say icing his nuts i honestly i took that as he wants to be cold uh cool down because it's so hot mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to but he doesn't put it tan. on his head he doesn't yeah if he puts it on his chest he's gonna block the sun yeah. right there'll be yeah. a spot where he, the, the ice but some people put it on their i don't know it, yeah. it's strange yeah. because it's dealing with a lot of things that are very familiar and frustrating to me in the gangster mm-hmm. genre but doing it better than most of them do yeah like the idea that you can never retire every time you think you're out they pull you back in yeah yeah that's absolutely that makes weird. sense right I mean, and the fact that no matter how terrible life and death the situation can be, I bitch about horror movies doing this all the time, that at the end of the day it comes down to who liked who first, always drives me crazy. <laughs> but it's amazing in this movie. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. like, again, I will watch anything that this director does. I am, like, when I said, like, people who like it, like it a lot. 20 years later now, there's a prequel TV series. Yeah, I just found that out today. I mean, that's that's wild. I didn't even know it was that popular a movie. Like to, to justify that, I thought it was a forgotten <laughs> early aughts film. So you know, wow, wow. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who missed it, and I think the people who like this type of movie will. It's not your standard uh, shoot 'em up gangster movie. It is much more psychological and thrilling in that way yeah. than it is viscerally. Not that it doesn't have its violent moments, but that's not what the movie's about. It's got some creative, almost Lynchian, what the... Again, you know. in another movie, that rabbit would have pissed me off. And this one, this it one fascinated it, it seemed me. to work, yeah. It fascinated me. What was the deal with that rabbit and the machine gun and what? Right. And <laughs> then, and I, I just want to say at the end, of, if, if nothing else, the price of admission for an airplane sequence where... <laughs> Two interactions <laughs> involving uh, this poor flight attendant, <laughs> and then how Kingsley gets out of that uh, in the next scene is... He could just walk out of the plane. He yeah. could just get up and leave, because he's decided he wants to go back. But, but he needs a reason to get... He has yeah. to create a reason, so he creates a reason, and it's it's hilarious. <laughs> and it is actually followed through in a the danger that happens in London in the third act. And yeah. so, yeah, I, I okay, I, I have to say something negative because I've been, like, beaming about this, the whole okay. review. Uh, I think there's some effects. There's a, a key scene of the beginning where a boulder crashes into um, swimming pool. There's a heart in there that gets broken. It's all part of the foreshadowing of there's danger coming to this uh, perfect world that they're in. Well, that, 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 that looks a little bit, you can, that effect is aged, but it's still... Uh, it also gave him a really, place to hide the body, too. Yeah, <laughs> it's really picky. And I guess 
if you don't like crime movies or dark movies or you're going to have an issue with the language i think that again some people might have issue with the persistent language in it um but i thought it was very accurate for for that world so i i don't think it's gratuitous in any way some people might not like it it's i happen to like it so on this side of the ocean the word shag not a big deal mm-hmm. the other side of the ocean shag is the equivalent of the f-bomb mm-hmm. that side of the ocean cunt not a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it's a swear word, but it's not a big deal. This side of the ocean... Oh, it's it enormous. Is, it yeah. is an enormously yeah, inappropriate is. thing to say. And it's the and, first thing that Ben Kingsley yeah. says. And uh, he says it so many times, yeah, I can get being thrown off by it. But I don't think it's inauthentic. I really don't. No, I, no, I don't. I just... Uh, some Somebody else who had watched this movie... Uh, said, I can't believe you made me watch Sexy Beast. So that would be the opposite. Okay. Yeah, that would be the bring us down to earth with this. But if this, you but do like it, you will you like are, it. I, I, I dare say you'll love it. Three shots have been fired at President John Kennedy's motorcade. It was his job to safeguard the destiny of a nation. But at the critical moment, he was a split second too late. Now, after a lifetime of second thoughts and second guesses, Secret Service agent Frank Horrigan is about to get a second chance. Yeah. Frank Horrigan? Yeah. I've read about you, seen photos. You were JFK's favorite. Dallas. What happened to you that day? And this time, he'll be ready. I see you, Frank. I see you standing over the grave of another dead president. That's not gonna happen. Clint Eastwood. In the line of fire. We're now on to the movie that I've had the longest time with, the most uh, nostalgia for. In 1993, uh, and I've talked to you about this, my gateway into horror was was thrillers and uh, crime thrillers or action thrillers. And the summer of 1993, there were three that I remember going to, and a couple of them I went with my dad. I think there were a few more of us that went to see the third one, but The Firm. Sidney Pollock's uh, The Firm, based on the John Grisham novel. Uh, later in the summer, The Fugitive, starring Harrison Ford. And I kind of like the TV show, and I love the movie. And in the line of fire, I saw I saw with my dad. Uh, the rest of the family had gone overseas. So I had like this month with my dad, and it's like the most time we've had. And I have a lot of really uh, great memories of that summer. And we watched, we watched a lot of movies, because that was kind of my my thing right big big time i wanted to see everything um and in the line of fire solidified for me that clint eastwood and of course it, this was right after unforgiven had kind of revitalized him a bit really had I, and i still stand by this that in the line of fire kind of proved to me that he not just as a movie star could be a really great actor and there's a lot of terrific choices in this this is one of the few that he didn't direct in kind of the last decades of his career. Wolfgang Peterson directed it. And I'm wondering if that's maybe why Eastwood had a little bit more time 
uh, he wasn't producing it either. He had a little bit more time to focus on the character and the acting agree. part. I think yeah. unless he's playing Clint Eastwood, it does better for his performance if someone else is directing it. Yeah. In Unforgiven, he's kind of playing Clint Eastwood, so it's it's yeah. it's, it's a darker one, and and yeah. and the it was a more subtle performance, I think, actually in in Unforgiven in a way that over the years I've come around to why he was nominated as an actor. I always understood why as a director he was for that movie. Um, but in The Line of Fire, for years I said it was my favorite Clint Eastwood performance. There was one movie I'll talk about another day that I, I, I like a bit better, but this is maybe my second favorite of his performances. Um, maybe not one of his most memorable characters, and again, this is kind of led into the old man roles a little bit. Um, but I really enjoy him in this. But of course, we're talking about villains. John Malkovich uh, playing Booth who is planning to assassinate the president and is upfront about this and has become phone buddies with Clint Eastwood, who is living with the trauma of the fact that he couldn't stop the Kennedy assassination. And he was a secret service agent who was there at that time. And this is like re-traumatizing him. And these conversations that they have are absolutely fascinating. And there were levels that Malkovich, I had just watched him, uh, as Lenny in Of Mice and Men, where you love that guy and you feel so sorry, but this is kind of like the Ben Kingsley thing. When a few months later I'm watching this, I am scared of him. There is a murder that happens about halfway through this film that the younger me was like, it was up there as scary as Hannibal Lecter or some of the you know thriller horror movies I was starting to watch. And from that moment on till the moment I am in your basement talking to you about this, I still think that John Malkovich's performance in In the Line of Fire is one of the greatest performances of all time. He should have also won an Academy Award. As much as I like Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive, maybe a more likable character, I don't know. But uh, this is a great performance. And In the Line of Fire is so well written that there are so many familiar tropes now I wasn't I hadn't watched a million movies at that time to recognize those tropes, but there's so many familiar tropes from action movies and action thrillers in here. But you almost don't care because how they're presented to me feel fresh and even now still kind of feel fresh. There's a huge sequence where this is not, you know, an invincible Schwarzenegger type of hero, uh, or even like a dirty Harry or some of his Western characters. There's a section of this story where he has a cold, which debilitates him, and he's you know he's not well and he's not and he's not getting along and he's getting going to be thrown off of this uh this this but he it's personal that he has to stop this guy and he's fighting through it and those are the best scenes where where Eastwood is weak and where he is emotional and uh he the, knows you know, he's the only guy who can stop this he, dude he does and <laughs> he, he has to stop him he has to, otherwise, what's going to happen to him if he lets another president be assassinated? Um, I know it's not a rank, but I, I use the term rank because yep. of him. This movie is going to rank way higher than it should because it is a conventional thriller in every yeah. way. In every way. Mm -hmm. Clint Eastwood has a likable partner. Yes, what's going to happen What's going to yeah. happen here? Yeah. He's way too old for this shit, but Rene Russo believes in him. Maybe there'll be some chemistry there, mm -hmm. right? Like, the weakest part of the film. I also have to give points, though. He was way too old for this shit. This movie's 30 years old. 
And dude's still making yeah. movies. Well, so I, like, I haven't seen him for the last couple of years, but yeah. yeah. Uh, he's yeah. like, I'm just saying. Yeah, he Bravo. is. Bravo. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this weird thing with John Malkovich. I actually had a, not really an argument, I'll say a debate with my one of my acting instructors, Pam, who you probably know. Yes. Because uh, I'd seen uh, Dangerous Liaisons, and I thought he was really good in that movie. And she was like, I don't think he was that good in that movie. I think he's made, giving a very modern performance in an otherwise very studied period movie. And I kind of, upon revisiting it, understood what she was talking about. I'd also seen Of Mice and Men, and I thought he was good as Lenny, but those are deceptive roles. Once you kind of find a tone or a beat with a character like that, mm-hmm. it's kind of like Sling Blade or Forrest Gump. You do the same thing in every scene, and it works. You need Sinise there. In... To help balance yeah. it out. Yeah. So then I saw In the Line of Fire, and I, like you, saw it with my father. And there's a scene where there's a phone conversation between Clint Eastwood and John Malkovich. And John Malkovich ends the phone call by saying, You can stop laughing at me and show me some goddamn respect. And he slammed the phone mm-hmm. down so mm-hmm. hard. And from that moment, I became a lifelong John Malkovich fan. I rewatched all of his previous. I rented Empire of the Sun again yeah. to watch him in yeah. it because I'd forgotten that he was in it. <laughs> Just today, I bought A Gangster Story, a movie I hadn't heard of because it stars. John Malkovich, yeah. and I put all of that back to this movie. Yes, Clint Eastwood's good in the movie. John Malkovich is fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, movie. I know. Like, he is, yes, overplaying it a little, like, it's a big performance, but he is so awesome. Yes. That it's not that you're cheering for him, but in a weird way, you're kind of in awe of, like, you are amazed. his moves. But, like, but he is a brilliant man. Like he is not, and and I I think to separate this from other action thrillers that Clint Eastwood did, because he did a lot of them in the seventies and eighties, and I like them; they're entertaining and the Dirty Harry sequels and all that. But the villains are one dimensional or two dimensional. This is a super intelligent guy. Like how he figures out how he's going to get himself an invitation right in front of the president. And how he can sneak a weapon in past the Secret Service and metal detectors and everything. And there's scenes you're watching where you're like, why is this in the movie? This is so random. Why is he duck hunting and and uh, getting into like these disputes with the, the, these hunters? And um, why is he uh, going in and flirting with this... Uh, this bank woman, which leads to I, the scene that got me into like, oh, 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 I'm, I, I'm so disturbed by this. And, and I think it's Wolfgang Peterson's direction in there. There's a shot that if it wasn't in there, it would be less horrific. Maybe they would have eased up a little bit on the rating of the movie, but he keep, keeps it in. Like the result of what he has done after this, this brutal home invasion scene which starts off with he tells a lie a lie at a bank teller and And he knows that she knows it was a lie and it probably wouldn't lead to anything no but just on the chance that it will he has to take care of this and and like this yeah this this one point and the the line like what was it you had to be from minnesota or why did you have to be from that town that town all the disguises and everything kind of work that can be a gimmick in other movies but i I like that and i like how it led to them having a lot of difficulty trying to figure out who this guy is the the whole secret service or the police procedural part of it and the fact that you have politicians and different levels of law enforcement uh stepping on each other's toes 
and not listening to the old man who's trying to tell them how this is supposed to work and what this guy's about. Conventional <clears throat> scenes were handled well. <clears throat> That's the thing. Like uh, it got a it got a screenwriting nomination, deservedly so, yeah. because it it overcame things that would be predictable and expected. You know, I think the characters are what bring it through, though, because mm -hmm. again, it's highly unlikely that it comes down to a fist fight between you know. Clint Eastwood and John Malkovich in a glass elevator, right? Like, this is all very conventional Hollywood, you know. This is where we expect this kind of action movie to go. Yeah. But I don't care. Yeah, no, but you, there's care. been so much good stuff <laughs> up to it. And, and the partner stuff, Dylan McDermott, again, he was up and coming. And, he, I mean, he's still working. Very good. At, there's a, a whole ton of other actors who are... Who are amazing in this? Like John Mahoney's in here, I think. Well, and it has uh, to work. We have to care about Dylan McDermott's death. Yeah, and it's the one. Well, I mean, like aside from all the people he killed, like he didn't have to kill Dylan, Dylan McDermott. He was out of danger. That second shot, that head shot, yeah, that was to punish Clint Eastwood. Yeah, that was. And he does seem to feel a little bit bad about it. Like he tries to write it off as self defense, but it's the one time he doesn't sound confident on no. the phone. <clears throat> no, like, like he should he know. Knows, like. I, I he guess knows. I didn't have to kill that guy, but you looked so sad on the bus, dude. It was like, yeah, I killed a dude. Relax. I, I'm an assassin, right? Like, that's, that's, what I, that's what I do for a living. That, I mean, that rooftop chase yeah. is exciting. Yeah. It was exciting to see. Like, I can't relive. Maybe the, someday they'll have a retro screening of it. But to, to see it on the big screen and, and the age it. that I was, too, it was so exciting. The villain's commitment, too. He's yeah. dangling from a ledge. Yes, and Clint Eastwood can either, you know, save himself or, like, pull the trigger. And Malkovich eagerly puts that gun in his mouth and begs him oh, to pull the trigger. Oh, it's no. just like, oh wow. and look at his face. <laughs> yeah. Like, that reaction in Malkovich's face. How could you not give this guy an award for, like, that moment alone? It's funny because it's the most conventional, like, movie on the list, like I said. And, like... If you've seen thrillers like this about a third of the way through the movie, you know exactly what you're going to see. And you're not wrong. But points for execution. Wolfgang Peterson, I mean, yeah. I got a little bit rocky towards the end of his career, as it does with a lot of big-budget film directors. Um, he knows what the hell he's oh, doing. He's, and especially in he, this stage, he did Outbreak yeah. around this same time. And, and like, just before this was an underrated movie called Shattered. I right. don't know if you... Yeah. Yeah, the time. I've watched that one a, a, yeah, a couple times. And... and like that—that's one that shouldn't work too. And to me, it's very watchable. It's not as good as this, of course, but it's you know it kind of led him into making like after like Das Boot, making these American genre films. Um, he was very successful and at it for several they years. Work. Yeah, mostly they work. Yeah, and uh, I think that yeah, the screenplay. You're right. Like the characters, particularly Clint Eastwood and and John Malkovich, obviously, really what run the engine of of the story. And if they were weaker. I don't think we'd be having this same conversation. And, and I loved Rene Russo because I love seeing Rene Russo in, in anything. In and I, I'm, I'm happy. Like she's had a little bit of work in things in the last five years or so. I, Thor kind of brought her back. It's like, oh yeah, we should have been casting and this person all along. Late 90s, early aughts were Night, kind of her time. Uh, Nightcrawler, Nat, and quite a good role here too. I think this, this was actually supposed to be an attempt at being a bit progressive. That like ultimately... She, she becomes the boss and she's Eastwood's boss towards the end of the film. But there is something kind of, I think if people are going to roll their eyes at this movie now, it would be the romance, yeah. which I, I remember I, I, I saw, um, I was sick a lot over, over the holiday, but I, 
this one day I couldn't concentrate on anything other than Siskel and Ebert YouTube episodes. <laughs> right. And I watched that uh, Memo to the Academy show. And they, uh, it was Siskel, I believe, was trying to make a case for Clint Eastwood to be nominated for Best Actor for In the Line of Fire. And he mentioned that, like, that sunset scene with them sitting on, uh, I think it was in front of uh, the Lincoln Memorial there and and how how well acted that was i i think that's that's the problem like you have to have a bit of romance in here um whereas they could have just been colleagues but my guess is in the script it wasn't written for clint and it was a younger dude and that could be probably fixed the script to make him older which added another layer did they add the kennedy stuff though because the idea is it would be like 30 years later because it it came out on the 30th anniversary of the kennedy assassination so So maybe you're right it was probably built into the script that way it's not that i don't buy the relationship with renee russo necessarily it's that it's very clearly the least interesting thing in the movie yeah yeah, and it's not uninteresting, but compared to everything, everything else, else. Going on, you can again, like this guy is actively calling and threatening the life of the president of the United States. You believe him, and in your heart, you know you're the only guy who can stop him. So, really, spending time on the Rene Russo character is actually maybe a breach of character for me. <laughs> like, yeah. maybe he would, maybe he likes her, maybe he's interested in her, and maybe after all is said and done, he would actually pursue. Her. I mean. It, it, it feels like there's this whole thing about choosing to live life or to live in the misery that uh, that Booth was living in, and all those phone calls were about how nobody understands guys like us, and and we, we get that with that voicemail at the end of the film, which is supposed to be kind of this haunting reminder of the guy, and it's like screw this, I'm gonna go out with my girlfriend and have a have a good a good day or whatever, which was kind of nice. Want to do one more shout out in this episode of Villains? Of course, Malkovich is the man here. Yeah. Um, but early on, this was my summer when I discovered who Tobin Bell was, because I had seen him play quite a creepy-looking villain in the the firm, and then he shows up in this uh, uh, right at the beginning of the film and has this kind of fun action sequence uh, right at the beginning. A lot of people forget about that and forget he's in the film. And I had almost forgotten about that. That's the opening and scene. And I, I think I kind of had a sense, oh, yeah, this is, this is going to be, he's he's not going to be a nice guy. I was starting to learn, oh, he's a he's a character actor. But I was just like, hey, it's the, the creepy guy from that other movie in, in this. Oh, that's kind of a nice link between the firm and uh, I keep and running into that with Danny Trejo. We yeah. watched the Anaconda. Oh, yeah. Danny Trejo's in this. I'm not sure replacement killers. Oh, yeah. Danny Trejo's in this. <laughs> it worked a lot. Yeah. Long before the Saw movies, which I'm not a huge fan of, but, you know. Yeah. Good enough on In the Line of Fire. I mean, I, see I it, feel like see I'm it, overselling it. it, but it's it's no. it's a sentimental favorite. I think we've mentioned a couple things that maybe could be criticisms, but I don't think either of us particularly care about those criticisms. And I, I, I stand by it. John Malkovich gives one of the greatest screen performances and in the line of fire and if you have not seen this this movie 31 years old now this this uh, as of this summer uh time is flying by but it is people just need to check it out if you haven't you know if you're a clint eastwood fan if you are a fan of this genre this is a must see please 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 check it out let me ask you something what's the most you ever lost on a coin toss. Look, I need to know what I stand to win. Everything. Just call it 
friendo. Willen, what's in the satchel? It's a bowl of money. He's just a guy who happened to find that money. I got a bad feeling, Llewellyn. Well, it's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. I'm looking for Llewellyn Moss. Did you go up to his trailer? Yes. Do you want to leave a message? Yes. I don't come back and tell mother I love her. Your mother's dead. Well, then I'll tell her myself. Got a loose cannon here. You think this boy Moss has got any notion of the sorts of dead are hunting him? I don't know. He ought to. He's seen the same things I've seen, and it certainly made an impression on me. Just how dangerous is he? Compared to what? The bubonic plague? The crime you see now, it's hard to even take its measure. It's just all out war. Can't stop what's coming. Is this guy supposed to be the ultimate badass? You don't understand. So I typically like to have kind of a list of strengths and weaknesses when I'm preparing for these reviews. And when I watched No Country for Old Men, by uh, directed by these uh, hacks called the Coens, I don't know, you might have heard of them. Um, what was toughest for me was my weaknesses list. And that says something. Right. So... I love the Coen Brothers. This is one of my favorite of their films. So I'm going to start off before we get into the really obvious things. This is an interesting movie to me in a way because it was almost their most successful film as far as like the critics and the awards go. Because um, it did win Best Picture. They finally won Best Director. They won Screenplay. Um, the film did very well. But there's this whole other camp of people that don't understand the last moment of the film, which we will get to, involving Tommy Lee Jones. And they're like, what? I remember being at that in the theater. Huh? What? Oh, no. People the, were the air confused. Went out of the room. Yeah, people were confused. Directed, written and directed yeah. by the Coen brothers went on, and like there was a confused reaction yeah. from the audience. Yeah, and, like, they were so... It was so quiet. It was like a funeral procession <laughs> leaving that theater. I loved it. So, I suppose, if you don't aren't willing to go back and watch the movie and like listen to what's being said and try to figure it out, then maybe that was a frustrating moment or experience for you, even though there's so much great stuff in here. I want to start off actually by shouting out the unsung heroes of this movie. 
because there were a lot of people that got uh, awarded here, but everybody is good. Josh Brolin, I think a lot of people forget, he is the central character, and he's playing Llewellyn Moss, who is, you know, this Texas guy who has the, uh, at first he thinks the fortune of coming across this drug deal that's gone horribly wrong, and chooses to take some money because there appears that there's nobody else there. And then he is a smart enough guy, you know, somebody's going to come looking for this, and he tries to find a way to to hide it. I think he is perfect casting and he is great and he, he just you know he's he's been in some other Coen Brothers stuff but I think he this is this is my favorite of his work in a Coen Brothers movie. This might be I'd have to think about it. This might be my favorite of his performances. Kelly McDonald who is and she's Scottish or Irish? I think uh, I think I, she's Scottish. I want to say Scottish. I think she's a Scottish. Right. You have no no idea that she is because and the Coen brothers are so specific about dialect they are they would not cast her unless she was absolutely perfect to yeah. their ear and yeah and then i mean she plays josh brolin llewellyn's wife and every scene she's in is great i i don't know why why weren't they thinking of her for for award nominations since i mean i especially if you know that actress and have seen her in other things yeah she's so good at well this movie. and a lot of people, maybe they didn't make the connection at the time that she was the, the, the teenage girl in train spotting. No, she's terrific. Woody Harrelson. Sometimes people forget that he shows up late in the film. I think this is well within Woody Harrelson's range, what he's doing, but he adds a ton to the film as well. And I, I really do think that, you know, obviously Javier Bardem gives the performance of the movie. And just like we're, we've been talking about Malkovich and we've been talking about these performances that, that overtake the film, Ben Kingsley and Sexy Beast. But there's so many other great things going on. Tommy Lee Jones, perfect casting, perfect person for the role, uh, set in the 1980s. And we have a whole series of very violent murders that happen that are Anton Sugar. How's it pronounce Shigur is responsible for, but who is this guy? And we see early on in, like, it was the scene from the coming attraction, which was haunting the first time I saw anything from this film. And it's one of the most famous scenes. And I always want to, I always forget this guy's name because we've talked about him before, Gene Jones. Yep. Um, we talked about him in a very different thing than when we, Talked on your show about uh, the sacrament, the sacrament um, an underrated horror movie directed by Ty West. He plays the complete opposite of that guy in this as this kind of gas uh, station attendant in Texas who encounters the the weirdest, most dangerous man he's ever met and does a coin toss basically to see whether he's going to live or die. And this is very much our introduction. Also, watching uh, Javier Bardem get uh, away from police custody and uh, really kind of a amazing scene where he chokes out that... Uh, he actually cuts his throat. With cut, the, with yeah, the, that's with right. The, uh, handcuffs. the handcuffs right through. Incredibly violent scene, yet it has a touch of Coen Brothers' dark humor in there. Because if you look at the floor... It's all it's, from his boots. It's all of the boots. You know, it's like the stuff that they talk yeah. about. Don't wear the, your outside shoes in gym because it, it marks up the gym floor all over this entrance. So I remember the, the, seeing that yeah. murder scene with his arms around that. It's, it's early in the movie. It's, He's got his arms around this right guy's away. neck. And they zoom in on his face. And the look oh, on Javier Bardem's it, face like, as he's killing this cop 
is absolutely terrifying. It's like it's like the devil possessed. As it, you know, the, like we talked about the Exorcist in Roundabout Way in another review, but it's like the devil came in and possessed the actor Javier Bardem, so he could get to that place. Because I'm not sure. Like I really have liked him, kind of he since he became known in in the United States and in Hollywood movies. I don't think before this I knew that he had this performance in him. And he rightfully, this is one where he actually did win the Oscar. And there was no question about this. This is like Heath Ledger's The Joker. Or like one of those, it has to go to him from the moment you see his first scene onward. Look, I pretty thoroughly filleted John Malkovich a minute ago <laughs> when we were talking about In the Line of Fire. Yeah. But there was no way Javier Bedem was not winning that Oscar. No, no. There was no competition. He would he would switch into that character and he would take each <laughs> Academy member and do the same thing he did to those characters. I would say not since Hannibal Lecter has there been a cinematic villain as terrifying as yes. Anton Chigurh. And what makes him terrifying is that he is an unstoppable force. And people who have a problem with the movie that is what they have a problem with. And you take that away from it, you take the power away from the movie. What the movie, the strength of the movie in a weird way is what it denies you. I remember, again, seeing this in the theater, and there's a scene where Josh Brolin's in the hospital. He's had a horrible confrontation with Shigeru. He's badly wounded, mm -hmm. and he knows this guy is not going to go away of his own volition. He's relentless. And he says over <clears throat> the phone, tell you what, you don't have to come looking for me. I'm going to make a personal project of you. And he hangs up that phone. And what that is, is an implicit promise to the audience that we are going to see a confrontation between Llewellyn Moss and Anton Chigurh. And the movie goes out of its way to deny us that. And some people, the restraint. Some people get really pissed off. Like, I, I've showed a really good friend of mine the movie. I'd already seen it, mm -hmm. and it was his first time watching it, so I was trying not to, like, <laughs> overspill. Yeah. But a major character, we'll get into it, but I won't spoil it yet, major character gets killed off, and he asked me, did that really happen? And I said, yes, it did. Off screen. And I think the rest of the movie was soured for him. <laughs> well, so it was at that point. Yeah. Because I always thought it was the Tommy Lee Jones thing at the end no, that a lot of people that lost think, a lot of people. But should we just say it? I honestly think it's when Llewellyn gets killed that people don't know what to do with the rest of the movie. Yeah. Like, what happened? Our hero just died two thirds of the way to the what? What? <laughs> and like, it well, all goes, that this all goes to Cormac McCartney. McCarthy. As much as I like to give all yeah. the credit yeah. to the Cohen. Yes, yeah, so they actually this was not an original screenplay. One of the rare times, like it, you know, no, um, also of course, Old Brother were art though. But yeah, it doesn't look like it because he doesn't appear to be the focus of the movie. But the focus of the story is in fact Tommy Lee Jones. It is yes. It's not Llewellyn and it's not Anton, even no. though they get way more screen time. The story is about Tommy Lee Jones realizing that his time has passed. Yeah. And he is right to retire. And that, yeah, no, he doesn't, this world doesn't make sense to him anymore. And it probably shouldn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is just the last case that he deals with before he goes and hangs up his boots. Yeah. And this has been his life, dealing with cases like this. Everything that he says to Llewellyn comes to be. Everything he says to Llewellyn's wife comes to be. Yes. He's here to clean up. 
it reminded me actually of uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, bring, Bringing Out the Dead a little yes. bit. Yep. When Nicolas Cage talks about his character being a grief mop, mm-hmm. that is the Tommy Lee Jones character mm-hmm. in this movie. And it's him dealing with it. Because he knows that's where it's headed the second this goes down. Mm-hmm. And when he finds out that Llewellyn has taken this money and gone on the run, he knows Llewellyn. He likes Llewellyn. And in his heart, he knows Llewellyn has just killed himself. He has, yeah. It, and like, and, no, and nobody will listen to him, too, because they just don't believe him. Because there's this, this whole thing, you just won't listen to an older person, no. even though that older person has lived this life and knows what's going to happen. And that's... And earned his retirement. Oh, uh, yeah. I think it's also shown he's got a little saggy character. Good actor, I like Garrett Delahunt. Yeah. Is absolutely the younger Tommy Lee Jones. Mm-hmm. Like, he is going to be a really good cop, and he does know what he's doing, but uh, it's not got to him yet. Mm-hmm. But it will. And that's all there. It's yeah. all there in the performance. And I think you get helped if you have read the novel, but uh, the Coen brothers are, are really smart about how they handle it. Uh, Shigeru talks way more uh, in the book than he mm-hmm. does in mm-hmm. the movie, and uh, Llewellyn way less even. Actually, I heard an anecdote that uh, Josh Brolin had to beg to get like just Coen Brothers famously don't fuck with their script. Once no, it's no, locked it, in, it is it's locked in. Yeah, but he convinced them to get him. I think it's a yep. When he first sees the money, he kind of looks off and revisions. I remember that, and he yeah. says yep. He fought for that. <laughs> like it's just like they go so long. But that, but that was the right choice. Yeah, I mean that was absolutely the right choice there because it, he is he is the the eyes and ears of the audience, and we're and we're discovering this stuff with him, you and know. We, and it and the it is a mostly silent sequence where we're all terrified kinds of stuff. for him the yep. whole time. The point of view work throughout the entire film, mm-hmm. but especially when he first finds the crime scene and the sequence between he and Shigur in the hotel, the camera work is. Amazing, it is. like you're seeing from their point of view without them telling you that, like it's not like the shadow of footprints under the door, like it's just amazingly mm-hmm. well done. It is also far and away the most violent Coen Brothers movie ever, and they have made so violent have. movies, but like this is a tough thriller. Like I said, when people came out of this movie, and again, I was processing it, I didn't have it all figured out. I think it is meant to be chewed over and revisited. Same thing with the book. But, like, this is a meal. It, it, it is. <laughs> and, it is. Yeah, it's a tragedy. And, yeah, it's not a feel-good number. But in order to help the medicine go down, you have some of the best action sequences that the Coen brothers have ever done. Mm-hmm. And amazing little bit of action. I love Stephen Root. Yes, this, that's this right. Sort of yep. like lynch kingpin dude in his own little corner of the this world. This whole subplot involving him yeah, and Woody, Woody Harrelson, yeah. yeah. And uh, the weird, we don't understand the moral code that exists inside of Shigeru's head, but there is one. There is, yeah. Like, <laughs> he will shoot Woody Harrelson for basically having the gall to interrupt his mission. And he will shoot Stephen Root in the face for hiring someone to come up behind him. But the guy who's in the room who witnesses it, eh, no, you didn't do anything to me. You were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we think that person is dead. <laughs> yeah, I was for sure that yeah, guy was no, dead. No, it's not said, That depends. Did you see me? And that's it. He's gone. <laughs> like uh, again, you're you don't know what you're gonna get, and when you think you do, you are wrong. And some people do not like that subversion. Yeah. I know people have reacted badly to the movie. I think it's kind of genius. And 
yes, a lot of that is from Cormac McCarthy's book, mm-hmm. but the Coen brothers completely oh. delivered. Well, who visu- else visually, have, what who would have cast the movie that way? And yeah. who would have, like, I don't know, like, who would have had the stones to stick with it? I have a feeling, like, some compromises would have been made under different people's hands, right? Like, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but they're they're just, they're like Tarantino. Like, there's a, a the small handful of filmmakers. Can not die? What if he just loses the money, but he he, he lives? Like, can, like yeah, him, and, some, him and Kelly McDonald could live happily ever after some somewhere. Some kind yeah. of comp- or can yeah. Kelly McDonald live? For yes, the love I of know. I mean, what the hell did she, she what she do? did nothing. <laughs> she did nothing. I mean, what a great last scene too. Like, oh. Her scene. I know what was oh. in for me the second I saw you sitting there. Oh. And the whole thing. It's heartbreaking. Like, I love this that his whole inner compass that he has, the, the coin flipping. Yeah. Uh, if I come to you, there's a reason that I was here. So, mm-hmm. like, there's all fate. And she throws that in his face very definitively. The coin does not have a say. It's just you and me here. And you can see it on his face. It bothers him, but not so much. He doesn't care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, what takes down Anton Chigurh? Well, nothing. He lives in the movie. No, no, no. But random fate, a random mm-hmm. car accident. I like to think it was because he was still a little bit haunted by what she had said to him, that he wasn't paying attention. But it's hard to read how that car accident happens because it comes out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of force of nature that may, might be capable of stopping Anton Chigurh. A lightning bolt out of the sky, <laughs> a random avalanche. Yeah, like, yeah. Here's a, a few things I'll say. Just kind of thoughts that I have. Some of this is a little bit of an. As you know, I'm an enormous fan of Fargo, and someday I will review it on the show. I haven't had the opportunity yet, but but when I was singing Fargo's praises when it first came out, and that's when I was kind of the year I started working in the movie theater and that kind of thing. Some people will be like, well, s- slow down there. Have you watched Blood Simple? <laughs> because the stuff they did on in the highways was taken directly from that. No Country for Old Men. There's a hotel sequence in Blood Simple, which is really suspenseful and tense. So they, they have some things that they repeat. But over time, to me, they Blood Simple was an amazing first feature from them but they got better and better and better and once we get to Fargo and then these years later when uh, with No Country for Old Men you could see that they are A++ filmmakers and they know their craft so well and they know their screenplay so well and they know how to cast and they can cast anybody they want and and to me I, I love Blood Simple and I love what it is and it's a great you know 80s movie and but I I, I, I still will watch No Country for Old Men or Fargo before I will put on Blood Simple for some reason, right. and Blood Simple has some some intensity to it too. But I well, so so I don't I won't I'm this, this is a not my criticism but other people's criticism that they repeat, repeat themselves. themselves. There's often kidnapping storylines. Yes. There's often yeah you can go through it dream sequences. The, I, I, the battle of good and evil I think emerges in almost all of their films. And quote what it is to be a man. Yeah. There's all sorts of things. Again, I could fall down a huge rabbit yes, hole. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm opening that up for you, unfortunately. The interesting thing here for me about No Country for Old Men is that this is the movie that they finally won Best Picture and Best Director. One director, yeah. screenplay, yeah, like supporting actor. It almost swept the whole thing. Yeah. And, uh, you wouldn't necessarily predicted it. It's because of how dark it was. And it's not a typical, necessarily, Coen Brothers movie. But 
the two movies they made right before this were The Lady Killers and Intolerable Cruelty, which mm-hmm. I would mark as very low mm-hmm. on the Coen Brothers canon. Like, yeah. I was still a huge Coen Brothers fan, and I was a big defender of the Coen Brothers, but mm-hmm. it was starting to get a little bit like, are they have they have they lost their shine? And they were kind of linked by some studio stuff with some of those movies yeah. when they. It, it wasn't. I, I, hey, look, I'm not. It was their movies, but they there were other people that were connected. I'm to not giving thumbs least. down to either of those movies, no, by the no. way. I'm just saying by Coen Brothers standards. Yeah, those it wasn't. Are, those are high. not as yeah. good. This was the one that that won them Best Picture, and this has happened before for them. Like they finally got a studio budget, and they put their heart and soul into a little movie called Hudsucker <laughs> Proxy. Yes, and it bombed. and it's a great movie. It's a fantastic movie. So the next movie they made just said, we'll just go back to our comfort zone. And they made a little movie called Fargo that yes. changed their fucking life. Yes. yes. <laughs> right? So like, you never know what's going to hit, mm-hmm. what's going to miss yeah. with the Coen brothers. But uh, I love that they did get a best picture and a best yeah. director. And uh, it's interesting that it's this adaptation because most of the movies they do are original screenplays. Yeah, they this are. is kind of an outlier. But man, do I love the yeah. shit of country for old man and i guess one of the things i'll end off with because i disagree with this sentiment that some people said because they didn't win best picture for fargo then this was their prize that they won for no country for old men but the world wasn't ready for fargo but there will there will be blood should have won best picture right now you know i'm a paul thomas anderson fan at some point we'll probably be talking about there will be blood on your podcast (laughs) because we are covering all of his filmography uh there will be blood is the one i and I, i really like it but that's the one that left me a little bit more vexed with its its following and its its pick as like the best movie of that decade and everything. I totally got No Country for Old Men is the better movie, and you know it wasn't it wasn't some maybe it felt to some people as some sort of uh, oh well we we snubbed you for all these other movies that we shouldn't have so now is the time to reward you. I think it earned its best picture and its best director and like seriously it is a great film. Again, if you don't, if you like mostly like the um, the lighter comedic Cohen films, then I love the, 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 I love Oh Brother and Raising Arizona. <laughs> for sure. But if you don't like the darker ones, this may not as much be for you. But if you are a Cohen Brothers fan, I'm sure you've seen this already yeah. many, many times. But if you haven't, this. for some crazy reason, stop what you're doing in your life, stop raising your children, stop doing your taxes, whatever it is. And put on No Country for Old Men or right now. If you were disappointed, now knowing what it is, yes, rewatch it. Rewatch it because yes. if you're expecting a conventional thriller, you are going to be disappointed yes. because that's the last thing that this is. It is not a conventional thriller, but and if, I and I would encourage people. The last scene in the movie really listen to the story that Tommy Lee Jones is telling. People were expecting another scene. dark action scene, so they were just getting revved up for that, and they weren't listening to what. The character was saying yeah and it was really important that you listen to what's being said that they're really important anything else you want to say about it i mean i could keep going yeah i know i yeah <laughs> cohen brothers yeah we could do just a, a podcast on on this movie but uh we'll, we'll move on to the i guess next i will review. finish by saying if you were expecting a conventional thriller from the cohen brothers and cohen mccarthy part of the blame might be on you yes sadly yes Is that unfair? That's not unfair. (laughs) They brought him in to solve an unspeakable crime. Detective Dormer, it's such an honor to meet you. I'm Detective Ellie Burr. Welcome to Night Mute. So incredible to be working with you. The Leland Street murders was my case study at the Academy. 
someone out there just beat a 17-year-old girl to death, your job is to find him. Doesn't say in the report that he clipped her nails. He washed her hair. No mutilation? Not this time. He tortures him, makes him do things, and keeps him there for three days. This guy, he crossed the line, and he didn't even blink. Police! What Detective Dormer doesn't know is that murder is only part of the plan. Dormer here. Killing changes you. It's like awareness. Who am I speaking to? Can't sleep, Will? He will taunt you. You and I share a secret. We know how easy it is to kill somebody. He will torment you. It can't be easy after three days of no sleep. Are you seeing things yet? And those little tricks of light. He will get inside your head. There's a ferry about five miles north of Nightmute. I'll be on 11 o'clock. I have great respect for your profession, but this situation isn't yours to control, Will. You try to impress me, Finch. You got the wrong guy. I took you ten minutes to beat Kate Connell to death. There's no evidence that I killed Kate. You only know it because I told you. Are you doing okay? I mean, you haven't been sleeping much, Detective Dormer. Another night up like this, and you're really gonna lose it. Now the game has turned deadlier than he ever imagined. This whole thing you're doing ain't gonna work with me. Hold it! Where is she, Finch? You know I love me some Al Pacino, and I was really excited about this young, up-and-coming filmmaker uh, called Christopher Nolan after he did this movie called Memento. And I wasn't as familiar, and I still, sadly to this day, have not watched the original version of Insomnia. But I was in, I'm a Hilary Swank fan, I am, a, Robin Williams is doing a villain and darker stuff, this is a... Again, it was within the same summer months, but it was about two, three months before uh, One Hour Photo came out. I was fully in. One of the things I would say is one of the pleasures of Seven is uh, that you uh, don't know who the big villain is when it's a very prominent actor. In the marketing, they made it clear from the beginning, completely spoiled the fact that Robin Williams is our big bad. Um, in this movie. I, I think that was a mistake, but they also maybe weren't sure if they could sell the movie purely on Al Pacino in another kind of cop role. And Hilary Swank, maybe they didn't think the two of them were enough to kind of get people there. I don't know. But I, I just kind of think that was a little bit of a, a mistake because they're kind of, you can see in the filmmaking of it, they're trying to cover up the fact that it's Robin Williams. And they, a lot of movies do that, like they did that with Malkovich in yeah. uh, in the Line of Fire as well. We um, hear him for a long but, time before we see. Yeah, him. for sure, and then we then we finally do see him. But you know that's that's marketing. The film I think is a solid thriller. Pacino and his partner uh, come from Los Angeles to help out uh, in this town in uh, Alaska with this uh, kind of this murder situation that they have, um, and they're like a very green group. They're you know, they almost idolize, and that's kind of the dynamic with Hilary Swank, is it's like she's meeting her her police detective hero, right. and, and she gets to work with uh, Pacino. Part of it also, he's had a bit of a scandal in 
uh, with the LAPD. And they're going to Alaska during the summer months where it is daylight all the time. And he, Pacino cannot sleep. And he's getting more and more tired. And that is affecting his sharpness as a police officer. And again, we talked about in the line of fire, if there's a partner uh, who's kind of a that guy type of actor, I think uh, his actor was in ER and some other things. I think his death plays a little bit more of an yeah. important It's a more important one here because in in this this great kind of chase sequence in the fog, uh, then there's a shooting that happens, and uh, it looks like uh, Pacino has shot his partner when he thought he was uh, he shooting. He did shoot his partner. Well, no, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he he tries to, to make it look like yeah. the killer did. He did it accidentally. Is yeah. the important thing. But as the movie goes on, it gets he starts to worse. doubt himself. Yeah. Like, did I do that? By accident? Because this is the one guy who has absolute proof that he did something corrupt in and his in LA becoming so psychologically frayed that yeah. he's starting to doubt his self. Yeah, like, and he can't sleep. And Pacino is so good in these roles. And the moment he comes in, he has this energy and drives the film in that way. Um, you know, I'm a beyond reason uh, an Al Pacino, enormous Al Pacino fan. So I don't know if that plays in here, but I love him in roles like this. And just watching his face, and he gets more and more tired. And I'm, I'm sure the method actor in him was doing what it does. He probably was depriving himself of as much sleep as possible so that it looked authentic. Because he he looks so tired yeah. uh, for two-thirds of this movie. The basic <clears throat> kind of corrupt cop, uncompromising, do whatever it takes to solve the case, is a role he has done and can do in his sleep. Yeah. I think the thing that gives it the edge is the lack of sleep and the psychological deterioration. Yeah. So, yeah. And this um, is where Nolan... I don't think Pacino was stretching himself too much. No, but I love watching him in this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's entertaining, and yeah, even if it isn't a stretch, he is so good in this. Like, I mean, if you're going to watch a Dirty Harry movie, you're going to enjoy watching Clint Eastwood play Clint Eastwood. I mean, just some actors have that dynamic. Yeah, this this. Again, he's he's not the total reason to see the film, but he drives the film really well. I think Nolan's direction takes some very conventional material and makes it better than it has any right to be. I mean, it's almost a companion piece to In the Line of Fire in this episode. I'm not saying that it's uh, necessarily better than In the Line of Fire, but there are some story beats that we could predict happening. The Robin Williams of it is that he is a, a, a murderer, but he kind of justifies his crimes there. I somehow, you know, and I almost hate to say this, but I still think I'm kind of wrestling with William's performance in here. I think it was supposed to be, we were supposed to be horrified and scared by this guy. And definitely the character and on the page, it's a horrible person. But I don't think, unlike in one hour photo, we are, we are squirming because there's such uncomfortable scenes there. I'm not sure he's he's good, but I'm not going to say he's great. But watching Pacino and Williams Together. play off each other is magic. All right, there, there's no doubt about that. So I'm not going to like I'm not saying it's a bad performance, but I'm not sure that that Williams was amazing in this. Where this was the this was the year I think he was trying to take a different direction with his career, and this was almost like this was the appetizer before we got. The entree that was one hour photo. 
Well, and I think like, he had Death the Smoochie the same year, too, yeah. which is a completely different thing, but yeah. I am a lonely defender of Death the Smoochie, but uh, we won't go there. Yeah. Uh, I think with the Robin Williams character, I think that in One Hour Photo, he has a bigger meal. Yes. And they give him more screen time, obviously, to really settle into it. I feel like more with this guy is that he wasn't a born killer. He wasn't spending his life planning to be a killer. No. This is a thing that happened. And because he's a human being, despite his evil actions, he needs to convince himself that he is not evil and mm. not insane. And when he has this Al Pacino cop character over a barrel, because he knows that he's... He witnessed the... The shooting. Yeah. Uh, he kind of feels like if he can convince Al Pacino of this as well, that he can somehow psychologically let himself mm. off the hook. He is not evil in that he relishes what he's done he's evil in that he's trying to justify mm -hmm. to himself what he's done and he's trying to connect with the al pacino character yeah. in a weird way he is not the malkovich character who wants to kind of destroy or sees him as an equal like uh he weirdly respects al pacino but also says we're all capable of evil you you you've, killed your partner. Yeah. Plus I, all this, other, he did his research. He yeah. knows what this guy you, 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 was accused you, of. You took the evidence to get people put in jail, and uh, you know I accidentally killed one of the people that I was supposed to be treating for therapy or whatever it was. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. um, and he's trying to make them equals. And of course, Al Pacino's character is not comfortable with that. No. But the deeper into the movie and the more into the fog of his lack of sleep and the, the weird atmosphere, yeah. uh, the more he starts coming to himself. One thing that haunts this movie, and it's not completely fair because it has been so long, I did see the original Insomnia. Mm -hmm. Stellan Skarsgård, before he was kind of known, I believe, on this side of the ocean. Yeah. It was a. Was it before Goodwill Hunting? Goodwill Hunting is it's when the people started to time, but, pay uh, attention to him. But yeah. I don't remember the exact. It was the '90s that it came out. Yeah, they I've heard that's a great movie. Much tougher on the Al Pacino character, as to my memory, mm -hmm. he is much more overtly corrupt and violent. There's a lot more gray behavior towards his hate and animosity towards his partner, and he full on sexually assaults that one witness who's played by. Uh, uh, the actress from Ginger Snaps, uh, Catherine Isabel. Yeah. Uh, in this movie, he like scares her and she starts crying and intimidates her. Mm -hmm. In the original story, like they allow that character to be much darker, mm -hmm. which I think makes him closer to the villain character, which I think maybe might make it a little bit more psychologically potent. Yeah. I, but I, I wanted again, to watch it before this. I, I, and I think I, so. I put a big yeah. caveat on this because I saw that movie once back in the 1900s but mm -hmm. my memory of it is that it was a much harder uh tougher movie than this one was yeah the other thing about this movie is when it came out it was built of it people christopher nolan was red hot yeah off of memento um you know hillary swank just won her first of what was going to be another uh, two oscars right yeah uh robin williams Caught up with Goodwill Hunting. Yeah, and the biggest. And they were still figuring out how Al Pacino was finally going to capitalize after finally winning his Oscar for Scent of a Woman. Like, all of the pieces that were put into this movie were red hot Hollywood mm -hmm. items. It almost didn't seem to matter what the subject of this movie was. It was <laughs> yeah. supposed to, it was just amazing by nature. And I think we just have to live with the fact that it's pretty good. It is not amazing, mm -hmm. it is not exceptional, it is pretty good. 
Like it's totally yeah. watchable. There's good acting in it. Uh, like they do a good. I, the only movie that does a better job of like visualizing extreme tiredness to me is The Machinist. Yes, the of Brad course, Anderson yeah. movie yeah. with Christian Bale. But having suffered from insomnia and gotten to that point place where I'm so tired, but I still can't sleep, but it's affecting my visuals. Mm-hmm. Like I try to read on a book or something, and like the words are swimming. Mm-hmm. Like my environment becomes fuzzy, but I still can't fucking sleep. I can't do yeah. anything. I can't be productive in any way, but I can't sleep. Yeah. And yeah, this movie and, and the, the machinist are the two that kind of get that, I think visually quite well. Mm-hmm. And that is the strength of the movie that said across the board. And again, everybody's good. Everybody's been better. Christopher Nolan has made considerably better well, movies. Yeah, Al Pacino yeah. has given considerably better performances, and Robert Williams has given considerably better performances. Now it's not fair to, to like hurt on the movie just because it was built of all these hot components. But um, I think, like I say, we just have to live with the fact that it's it's decent. Yeah. It's solid. It is not amazing. And, and definitely Hilary Swank has been better. I I, I, I think I, she did the movie to work with Al Pacino. Well, and I would too. I mean, right? I'd, I'd be coffee boy number five to, be, right. to work with Al Pacino. Um, and I would learn something from that somehow, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, where I like her is like being kind of the like bright-eyed, naive detective who wants to be better. But then those scenes where she starts to question things and is like, this doesn't, you know, but, but she's just trusting that he is right about everything. Those really work well. I like the moment, you know, the morality piece towards the end about like, you know, stop making me a hero. Don't be like me. Don't, because there's, there's a choice that she has to make towards the end, which could lead her down the road that the Pacino has gone or not. I, I like that. I know it's kind of a little bit hokey as I describe it, but it works really well. Somehow Nolan makes that work um, when it could be in a lesser filmmaker. It would feel well, and a it little bit forced. It doesn't feel conventional. It, 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 it doesn't, and it could. Yeah. It could. So I like her in those moments, but I'm not, I'm not sure that she has as great a role or as much to do in this film as she got to do in Boys Don't Cry or Million Dollar Baby or some, you know, some of these... Some some other uh, films that she's had, she kind of goes through these years or not getting great roles, and then she has an amazing role. Uh, this was a medium role, I for sure. I think it was it featured her a lot. They knew that she could keep up with Pacino and Williams, which is not easy to do. Um, and uh, I, again, I, I I think I like it more than you do, um, but I am with you that I'm not drooling over it. But it it feels like a forgotten Christopher Nolan movie. When people are talking about Christopher Nolan movies, they, of course, go to Memento, and then they jump to the Prestige, and then we're into the Batman trilogy, and, and onward to his, 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 yeah, and his, uh, kind of his war films, and his, now, of course, Oppenheimer. And I would like more people to check out this one, because this is Christopher again, Nolan doing kind list. of a conventional type of, and elevating a convention action thr- thriller with... I mean, an A-plus cast, for sure. So, But on that list, I have a collection of Christopher Nolan films in my hand. I have mm-hmm. to have. The following, Memento, Insomnia, The Prestige, Interstellar, and Inception. Insomnia is at the bottom of that list, if you ask me. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad movie. Like, Christopher Nolan hasn't made a bad movie. And I haven't seen, fo- the, I haven't seen Following. I've heard some people a bit mixed on that, but it... That it felt like a bit of a, stu- a student film, but I 
Again, I, I can't I mean, comment on it. probably only got mass release because it's Christopher Nolan's one. Yeah. But I think there's Retroactively, I think, when he became, Memento became so big. But There's something to be said, like, with this measure of people, you, you, you put it on a higher bar. Mm-hmm. The, and I think, like... We talked about Woody Allen. Right. And you talk about, like, if you, you were able to have, like, a five, six decade long career and have access to everybody that he had, then anybody could yeah. come across to be, like, You can work with anybody you want. You can yeah. have any cinematography you want, any special effects people you want, and you can make a couple movies a year for your entire career. You're going to make some good movies. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Christopher Nolan is very consistent. Like I've uh, said before, like uh, I'm not like frothing at the mouth of Christopher Nolan the way a lot of people are, but I think he's an amazing filmmaker, and he hasn't made a bad <clears throat> movie. I just think that people need to calm down about the they, Dark Knight. They sometimes trilogy. need, yeah. yeah they, they, sometimes they do need to, you know, I, I have really liked a lot of his movies. Yes. Um, but I haven't been to the point where, and even with Oppenheimer, which I think is a great film, it's some other things that I am kind of, you know, leaning on with that, but I... But this is yeah. the one Christopher Nolan film where everybody seems to be agreed upon. It's not as good as the others, but mm-hmm. it's still good. Yeah. And I guess I will go with the, mm-hmm. with the group yeah. on that thought. But if you're, if you're wanting to not have to think quite as hard about what you just watched, and this one doesn't you know play around with time like a lot of his films do this is probably an easy one to you know sit down and watch and get something good out of like ironically when you're tired or something like that you you're not gonna stick on actors some of these cerebral films that he does for for actors who might be listening or anybody who doesn't yeah um i think that's an interesting study of overacting and underacting uh I know you're a big Al Pacino fan, but he has a tendency at times to be an overactor. And I think Robin Williams has been accused of that. But in this case, he's underplaying it. It's interesting to me that the partner that he has in this movie is played by Martin Donovan, mm-hmm. an actor who he gets a lot of work. A lot of he, he, like he's him. a that guy type of an actor, yeah. I find him very flat. I find him he was. like very mm-hmm. flat. And you're working with Al Pacino, you know? Yeah. It's just interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think I find that true of Martin Donovan. I said about the, the opposite of sex mm-hmm. movie, Windchill. He just always has this sort of... He's there, but... He's not yeah. bad. He's not good. He delivers the lines. That's kind of... I don't know. Mm-hmm. You're working with <laughs> Al Pacino. This is know? an opportunity. Is a, but it's interesting like to see how much... Al Pacino does with his lines and how little Martin Donovan does with those lines. They're both decent actors. They're just making different choices. But like mm-hmm. you can distract yourself with the style of acting. But when you're doing that, it's kind of, you know, <laughs> tells me that you're not as involved. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's the kind of stuff. Again, this was the third or fourth time I'd seen the movie yeah. that I was starting to enjoy it this time. Yeah. And I don't think Pacino overplays anything. I don't think we have the, Not the hoo I'm going to take a flamethrower this place yeah. types of no, no, say no. hello to my little friend. We don't have those things happening. He does play it to point, but he's just, he's because he's a big shot cop. I mean, he's, and he's impressing these small town people. He's got he's got Very that rarely kind of swagger. Does he play but low status character. Yes. Yeah, no. No. He, <laughs> it, it it doesn't happen. I don't think ever. But uh, yeah. And I'm just I kind of live and die by Pacino. So that's you know one of my inspirations to get into acting as as you well know. Yeah. But um, I said, when you watch the movie, cinematography is amazing. Alaska, the landscapes is great. Landscapes yeah. are beautiful. The acting I, amazing. I might say but, there's a few less indigenous people in mm-hmm. this town. Which, yeah, again, I, 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 because I just watched the first episode of the new True Detective show with Jodie Foster right. set in Alaska, I was like, 
Okay, so that's probably how that town in Insomnia should operate. So it's right. a bit of a, a veiled criticism. but Of every other movie set in Alaska. <laughs> yes, pretty much so. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but again, aesthetically, it's beautiful and the acting is good. Uh, but that was the stuff I was enjoying more than the actual nuts and bolts of the story. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe it's because it's been worn with use. But this time around, it was much more surface. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, I still encourage people to check it out if they haven't seen it. And the Oscar goes to Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men. Wow. All right. Uh... This is pretty amazing. Uh, it's a great honor for me to have this. I want to, I have to speak fast here, man. Thank you to the Coens for being crazy enough to think that I could do that and put one of the most horrible haircuts on history over my head. <laughs> Thank you for really improving my work. I want to share this with the cast, with the great uh, Tommy Lee Jones, with the great Josh Brolin, with the great Kelly McDonald. And I want to dedicate this to my mother. I have to say this in Spanish. I'm sorry, mamá, esto es para ti. Esto es para tus abuelos, para tus padres, Rafael y Matilde. Esto es por los cómicos de España que han traído como tú la dignidad y el orgullo a nuestro oficio. Esto es para España y esto es para todos vosotros. Thank you very much. Larry, thank you for being on the Shelf Shedding Movie Show again and talking about villains with me. Yay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love those roles. I think that was the thing I was trying to do when I was trying to be an actor many years ago as I was looking at those Malkovich types of roles. Those are the fun roles to play. And because I, you know, not bragging about myself, I'm a, I'm a general, generally a nice person. You're a nice person, right? Fuck but, you. <laughs> okay, I've been wrong all these years. But there's something really fun about being able to go in and just play a character who is evil. There's the danger of overplaying it or whatever, but... I um, got to play uh, Moss in Glengarry yes, Glen Ross. Yes, great role. It was a piece of shit, and it was a blast. Yeah. yeah. It was a blast. It's nothing but fun. Um, and so I, I've always enjoyed that, but it's because of this kind of teenage years, discovering all of these villains and kind of realizing, oh, there's something kind of fun about the bad guy. When I was always taught in cartoons that the bad person is always bad and we shouldn't like the villains... But sometimes the villains are the best part about a, uh, a movie. Well, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to get pigeonholed into a genre. And to get pigeonholed into a character, uh, if you're the superhero cop, lucky you. Mm -hmm. And if you're the you know, the guy with that rough face, D Danny Trejo I was talking yeah. about mm -hmm. earlier, good for you, man. Well, it's hey, a great career. Use it. You get to work till... Use it. Yeah. 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 It's a great gig. So anyway, so we're... You know, I, and I think some of the, the, the movies we were talking about were almost performances of a lifetime for some of these actors. Some have been great in many other things as well. But, you know, I, I love returning to uh, these movies. And, you know, I, I know I'm, you know, likely losing a movie here from my collection. But I feel like if, if that movie goes away, whatever the bottom one is, and it happens to be in some situation streaming or otherwise, where I can watch it again in the future... I'm, I'm not going to turn it off and go, oh, I'm banned from seeing this forever. It is forever banished. Yes, I am, I am going to put it on and I am going to enjoy it and probably enjoy it on another level. So then I did. So let's go through in the order we review them in. Um, again, going with kind of this newer point system where uh, your top film would get six uh, and then your bottom film would get one and everything in between. 
uh, allowing ties, which I am going to uh, spoilers for mine. I am I'm using some point five ties for okay. mine because I I had a tough time making some decisions here. So, but uh, starting off with you as my guest here, in honor of rank and review, I've done. It's, it's a rank, six, but yeah. I just want to say for the record, I do like all of these movies. Like, they're all positive reviews. They're just somebody had to be a masterpiece. Yeah, I didn't. We often run into this when it's six quality films. Sometimes if there's two or three duds, and it's even within that, there can be a little bit of a competition with yeah. with that. But if there's one really obviously bad one or one really obvious good one, um, then sometimes I think we've we've talked and there's been a really obvious top there maybe is a really obvious top one for you in here um but still that doesn't mean that the other movies are bad i think this is a good mix of movies here so um we're starting off with one hour photo so how many points would you give one hour photo so uh i would put it in fifth place so that would be two points two points for one hour photo again i i like it i think it probably has the least rewatchability of this entire list but it is worth it yeah the thing I didn't say in the review is I sometimes forget things about it. I've watched it three times and then I would watch it again still kind of because it gets better for me with each watch, but also I want to figure some things out. And I'm again, this last time I was like, I was back to the first time where Robin Williams was, was wowing me with that one. So uh, Goldfinger. Goldfinger. Number one. Well, like, the bottom or one, of the list. So bottom of the point. list, so one point. Yeah. Again, it, it is showing its age, but it is also iconic. I feel like if you're into 007 even a little bit, you should watch it. Yeah. And if you feel like you need to hold your nose while you watch it, I guess do that. But come on. Like, yeah. lighten the hell up. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was so, 1964. It was. Uh, times have changed. Yeah. For sure, but I, I think it's just as entertaining, you know. So, uh, sexy beast, sexy beast. This is controversial, I guess, but it's in third position. It should be in second position, but it's in third position. I have a hard time with the whole best and favorite. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Okay, I think between in the line of fire and sexy beast, sexy beast is the better movie. But in the line of fire is my favorite. Yeah. Okay. It's just I I I, I completely <laughs> understand that. So that would be four points then for for sexy beast. Yeah. Uh. So in the line of fire. Five for in the line of fire in okay. second place. All right. Uh. I wonder with no country for old men where you have that. Six points for no country for old men. Everybody was playing for second place. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm a well, Cohen Brothers. I know. Fanboy. But I also just think that's accurate. Yeah. No, no. I mean, with, and I said myself, I was struggling to write down weaknesses. Yeah. Where What I was coming up was what, what people have said, kind of broad criticisms of the Coens, but they're pretty, yeah. pretty flimsy. It, 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 it is a... Which means... Pretty yeah. close to perfect movie there. So Insomnia... Would mean three points for Insomnia, right? Three points for Insomnia. So that would just One. make the rank for the record. Goldfinger in last place. One hour photo in second last, then, uh, sorry, then Insomnia, Sexy Beast third, 
in the line of fire second, and he'll come through for a line of fire. So we we have some some remarkable similarities. Actually, if this was, it'd be close. We wouldn't if it was rank and review. We I wouldn't be winning the rank and review championship, but uh, which I covet so so much. Um, <laughs> someday, someday, we'll, we'll guys. Blown. Yeah, I'm like, what? how did that happen? What happened? The only time it would have happened is a show you did with Sky. So uh, anyway, yeah, for me, one hour photo is the you know the bottom of the list. I, I I'm giving it one point, but it has gone way up from when I I first watched it the first time I was preparing for this this episode. I'm glad I watched it again today. It, it was close, and I was again I was I'm making liberal use of ties. Uh, for for some of the other ones we're talking about here, but I, I didn't think it was strong enough to to make it for me there. Goldfinger, I'm giving two and a half points to. All right, uh, it, it's the age of it and some of the other pieces there, but I still think it's a solid James Bond film. It's one of the greatest James Bond films of all time, and I have to reward it uh, for that. But again, there are other movies in this group that I, I like more. One of those movies is Sexy Beast that I gave four and a half uh, points to. So it was also part of a two ties that I did. <laughs> and the other four and a half points is in the line of fire. And those were the two that you were wrestling with, I yeah. think, kind of for second and third spot. So I kind of went went for a tie there. Because No Country for Old Men is the best movie that we're talking about. I have much more nostalgia, and I've watched In the Line of Fire a lot more times. Uh, and Sexy Beast is so well made. But No Country for Old Men is just in a different universe. So that was six points. For sure. And I mean, when I got ready for this, the first time it was going to be the top. And this time again, nothing nothing has changed there. Insomnia is still kind of in the middle there. With Goldfinger is where I put the tie. I couldn't decide between the two. Uh, two and a half uh, points. I could maybe argue now you can like, you won't be holding your nose watching Insomnia quite as much as you as you put it. And maybe there's some people now, we put the two movies together, they'll be like, are you out of your mind that you're tying those two? Insomnia right. is the better movie. I still am not completely sure. I think Goldfinger has such a legacy to it, and you can put it on at any time, and I think you're going to still get entertainment out of it. But I do get entertainment out of Insomnia, even if it is the lower tier Christopher Nolan and lower tier for, for the cast. I still think it's a really interesting crime film that I'm happy to watch uh, over and over again. But I think if there's an unsung member on this list, it's got to be Sexy Beast. Yeah, it is. Like, it no is. People need to men, see it. Yeah. People know. Yeah. You know? And I think most people have an opinion on Insomnia, whether yeah. or not they remember In it. the Line of Fire, I, uh, maybe some people who didn't grow up in the 90s have forgotten about it, but it was, it was big, big when movie. it came out. It made a lot of money, and yeah, if it I was have, riding the, uh, the success of Eastwood. If so. I have any qualms about my list, it is two and three. Like, Sexy Beast feels like it should be number two, but I just have this affection for in the line of fire so, so if, you, if you want to know our points together what the rank would be let's hear it based on this no country for old men not shockingly is number one would have 12 what? points <laughs> then number two is in the line of fire with 9.5 three is sexy beast with 8.5 um then in fourth place is insomnia with 5.5 uh fifth place is Goldfinger with 3.5, and the movie that leaves my movie collection is One Hour Photo, which I know you already own, and this is actually, unfortunately, this is a full screen oh, version. Really? I think I got it in a either a going out of business sale or maybe in some garage sale or something like that, mm -hmm. where I 
had purchased it and not realized it was full screen. Donate so, it to Value Village. And donate the person it. will buy it. And when they get it home, they'll go, shit, full screen. <laughs> and then they'll get rid of it on their podcast. And the circle will continue. The circle of life. Yeah, there. Exactly. I'll be like Lee singing in every <laughs> episode. Shout out to Lee Beckman, who... Uh, who is uh, truly the greatest villain. Yeah. That's really... Yeah. <laughs> and Don Shakur has nothing on... <laughs> Beckman. All right, that's that's close to where we'll leave it. But I, I, I rank and review again, going strong in the tenth season. Yep, uh, we've got seven more episodes left for the season. I guess I don't know when this is dropping, uh, but yeah, I, we're, we're somewhere in the two hundred and forties. I'm gonna take a break when I get to two fifty. Yeah, for <laughs> every sure. twenty five episodes every year, I take yeah. a few months off, and that's smart to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then unfortunately the. the What's happened with my podcast at points, I'm taking months off, not out of choice, just because I just haven't Life been able to produce as many. Life does get in the way of, uh, this is the fun part, just talking movies with uh, you and, and, and any of my guests. Um, I want to shout out, uh, I'm going to, again, the timing of when things get released is kind of interesting, but I'm going to be on Schlock and Awe, Lindsay Wilkins podcast, talking about uh, two movies where people lose control of their bodies, uh, the... Uh, the pairing is going to be, uh, of course, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the 70s and Josie and the Pussycats, huh. a forgotten, uh, kind of, of based course. on the Archie Comics uh, movie there. Those two um, go together like jam and peanut butter. <laughs> and uh, we'll be hearing from uh, the Lifetime of Hallmark, of course, Kurt Fitzpatrick. He's going to be uh, on the journey of doing the Oscar shows with me again over the next uh, couple of months. Our time we're recording, the Oscar nominations are going to be coming out uh on our next tuesday um then i also want to shout out film feast uh matt bledsoe uh also lined up to uh, be a guest on this show uh sometime soon so please uh check out those fine podcasts um and friends of the show but you need to check out rank and review it is uh the father podcast to uh the shelf shedding movie show and we can even see in the points thing the rank thing and I never wanted to completely copy what we did here, but it's, it's starting, it seems that way sometimes. We're related. There's some. There's some. Uh, there's, some there's a connection there. I I had never been on a podcast in my life until I stepped into your garage to talk about Stephen King movies some years ago, yeah. and uh, that was like six or seven years ago. Yeah, oh my God. And then I was just like, okay, could you have me on every two weeks because I'm addicted <laughs> yeah. to this? Oh, why don't I just have my own podcast? So that's that's how that happened. So, and last thing, just uh, please be safe. Be healthy and be kind to one another, and let's uh, try to have a more peaceful and friendly 2024 than un how unfortunately it's been in recent years there. So. Otherwise, I'll punch you in the nose. Like a villain. <laughs> Thanks for listening.